need some rehab or maybe just need some sleep i got a sick obsession i'm seeing it in my dreams i'm looking down every alley i'm making this desperate cause i'm staying up all night hoping hit my head against the wall what you got boy hello there my name is tom chick and you are listening to the quarter to three movie podcast for shame shame I am joined this week by. Wait, wait for the. You've used that one before. No, I've used Keisha before. I don't think I've used that one before. Uh, I don't. Oh, you know what? Maybe I have. That's fine. No one cares. All right. Uh, I am joined this week by uh, Christian Molowski. No, it's the worst kind of last name. It's Volv. (laughs) <laughs> and with a shame-related tagline we have this week, Kelly Wand. Bring a towel. <laughs> Kelly Wand, is that your nod to Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know you were in that dramedy, too, in the 80s. I'm going to throw the towel right back at you, Kelly Wand. <laughs> oh, I can see the two of you throwing the towel back at each other, both of you buck-naked. That's adorable. My uh, backup catchphrase is, yeah? what did I feel after seeing shame? Remorse. Well, let's explore that shortly. That's why it was the backup. But first, uh, Dingus, what not is... not? Yeah, not what is shame, not the actual sensation, uh, but the movie. What is the movie? Yeah, yeah, what is the movie? It's this shame thing that we saw. Give us a, a basic breakdown of, of what this thing was. No spoilers, please. Oh. All right, well, this week we saw The Shame. No, nice shames. Nice try. Say the okay. real name of it. All right, we saw Shame. Ah. A 2011 American drama movie. Ah. Uh. About a New York man and his sex life. <laughs> so it's like Moonlighting. It is. Dramedy. Steve McQueen directed Steve McQueen directed Shame and he co-wrote the film with Abby Morgan. Mm. It stars Michael Fassbender, mm. Carrie mm. Mulligan, Nicole Bihari, and James Badge Dale. Those are all names. <laughs> uh, the movie is rated NC seventeen mm. for some explicit sexual content. That's all? I would figure there'd be a whole long list. Nope. It's only some explicit <laughs> sexual content. And that's NC-17, which because, means... What is that? Yeah, what does that stand for? North Carolina-17. Uh, <laughs> it means uh, all the people number. in North Carolina can see it, and only 17 of them. <laughs> oh. Because that's not... That's like not Jehovah's a, Witnesses. It's not a rating we see very often in, in movies that we talk about. I also know, I want to thank the MPAA for once for rating a movie that basically says sex can be a bummer, kids, in C-17, which means they don't want 17-year-olds thinking that sex can be a bummer by seeing this prudish pro-abstinence filth shame. So thank you, MPAA. Kids, return to your uh, American Pie movies. Uh, so, Dingus, was that the sum total of your synopsis? Do you have more you needed to add? No, that's it. The, uh, NC-17 means no one or no child under 17. Nobody nobody in the world under 17 years old is allowed to go see this. Now, I don't think the MPAA has uh, jurisdiction over, say, Bhutan or Europe. So I don't know about they nobody in the world, ratings. but nobody in America. Uh, would they like the euro to tank? 
<laughs> Too late. Oops. Uh, all right. Well, Shame uh, opened this weekend. Uh, it had a $360,000 take domestically, which you would think, uh, that's that's nothing. It didn't even make a million dollars. But it only opened on 10 screens. Why? Uh, it's a limited release. Uh, Why? And Wait, did you say 10? 10 screens around the country. And now, now here's the thing. Uh, if you look at one of the ways you can look at box office performance, and I find this stuff interesting, so bear with me for a moment. One of the ways you can look at it is the overall take. Uh, like like the, the Muppet movie, I think, made $5 million this weekend or something like that. Uh, however, I think an, an important part of how you look at this is how many screens did it open on, and therefore how much did it make per screen. Typically, when a movie tanks... It tends to make, like, like Tower Heist made $7,000 on every screen that it opened at. The Muppet, the new Muppet movie, which also tanked, that one made like $8,500 uh, on every screen that it opened on. Most movies open when they open wide on about three to 4,000 screens. Uh, a really big, successful movie like Breaking Dawn, the, the Twilight movie, $34,000 per screen. That's great. Uh, even a movie like Paranormal Activity, because it was so cheap to make, it made a lot of money. It had a huge profit, but still it was middling with 15000 per screen. So this doesn't mean much because it's a limited release. It, it, it's got some good positive buzz. Uh, as far as like an art house crowd, this is a perfect draw. But if you look at it at a per screen basis, shame beat Twilight Breaking Dawn. Uh-huh. $360,000 on 10 screens. That's actually math even I can do. That means it made 30, 30, 30 36000 I got it right. It made $36,000 per screen to Twilight Breaking Dawn's 34000 So, limited release. Uh, I don't know how it'll do overall, but uh, by the metric of per screen take, it did very well. Uh, critically, right now, it's at 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, which means 80% of the reviews have been positive. Uh, if you look at it on Metacritic, it's currently at 71%, and that has to do with, uh, that, that takes into account the actual ratings that people give it. Um so the, that's the spoiler-free stuff about shame. We have all seen three seen it, so we are now. Go ahead, Dingus. Yeah. I, I just want to say that that that's really great because um, a lot of theaters will refuse to carry NC-17 films, like for moral reasons, and so for it to do that well and and have that kind of refusal. I mean, you're still talking about per screen type of a thing, right? Um, which doesn't really what I'm saying doesn't really play into that, but it, it's it is kind of cool because it because theaters refuse to take NC-17 films. Yep, absolutely, and I, I think uh, we'll, we'll get into this uh, a little bit more in a, in a moment. But uh, I, I think if this starts getting Oscar recognition, which I think it very well might, uh, you know, this is a nice push towards making NC-17 ratings viable, and I would love to see that. I, I think all three of us on this podcast would. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 material success and hopefully it's it's critical success and it's uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences success uh, are all great things considering the NC-17. So it's good value NC-17 wise because remember the first NC-17 movie was Henry and June, which was <laughs> a really tame ass movie I thought, and I thought and then it didn't make any money and everyone goes see NC-17 nobody can handle it and I was thinking no it's because it was so boring. Well, hold that thought. Let's get into the ratings uh, once we can talk some more about the specifics. Uh, <laughs> because I want, I want to compare it to other movies and, and about right. why it's NC-17 and what value that does add or, or doesn't. Okay. Uh, so hold that thought. And Kelly Wand, instead, 
why don't you spoil the movie? Instead of saying something insightful for anyone who has a bunch of random jokes. Yeah, what are, what are we going to call this uh, bunch of random jokes this week? Shame Opsis. Nice. <laughs> Rock and roll. I don't know about this box office stuff, though, because it's all ephemeral, isn't it? Never mind. Uh, money is not ephemeral, Kelly Wand. Yeah, I know, but by the time people listen to this, it'll have made another $2 million, maybe, and then we'll have to redo it. Uh, you know what? I don't know what its opening, what its strategy is going forward after the initial 10 screens. And like Dingus said, because a lot of larger chains won't open it, I don't think it'll have as wide an opening as other art house movies might. Um, See, that all skews these statistics, too. Like you just said, oh, it's doing great. It's doing much better than you would think. And this is opening the way for entertainment. And you compare it to Breaking Dawn, but it's like everybody who was going to see Breaking Dawn saw it the first weekend. So it's mm. not like this is. Yeah, no, movie. Breaking Dawn has legs. I don't know where you're getting that from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, no, you're right. Money, money never sleeps, Kelly Long. <laughs> That's why they call it money. Uh, uh, <sighs> Kelly Long, put the coffee down. You mammoted me? <laughs> Give us a shame obsess. Shame obsess. See you guys. Michael Fassbender plays this guy who needs to get laid constantly, much like every guy. But since he looks like Michael Fassbender... Oh, wait, I screwed it up. Since he looks like Michael Honey Badger and doesn't give a shit, he does get laid constantly. But he's as miserable as a 40-year-old virgin, except that virginity's way cheaper. Luckily, he has a job making antivirus scan software that detects porn cookies, which is kind of like hiring the John Hawks character in Marcy Magdalene to babysit your daughter. One of his job perks is getting to sleep with whoever his boss strikes out with at bars every night when they go out tomcatting. One night, they go to this ritzy club called Condoms, and they're at a table talking about how awesome the 10 a.m. scrum went that morning. And then his boss spots a pack of hotties giggling at the bar. As he staggers over to try his luck, one of the dudes goes to Fassbender. Sawbook says he opens with Skyrim, and they're all, yup. So the boss goes up to the blonde and goes, hey, hot one of the group. Uh, yeah, did you know there's an exploit in Skyrim where if you put a bucket on your head, the NPCs will sell you door puzzles? <sighs> Why am I so awesome at games? Because like my business card would say if I had one, my middle initial is I. And know what that stands for? I for details. So she covers her eyes and goes, okay, how many eyes do I have? And he's all... Uh, I didn't know there was going to be math. And then Michael Fassbender comes up, and she's all, well, hello. How many eyes do I have? And he's all, B cup and change. And his boss is all, oh, hey, me again. Hello. Uh, hey, yeah, so uh, we like my whole gender. We've been wondering, uh, do you guys ever say, that's what he said? Like right after your friend spotted me coming over here and said, incoming? And they're all, no, we're women. Hearing stupid shit run into the ground just kind of makes us yawn. And sports. And you guys measuring your boogers and poops, that's lame. And he's all, sorry, I wasn't listening. There was a beer commercial on in my head. Speaking of which, want to dance while I try not to throw up and grope you? So Fassbender's life's going along swimmingly, like a lemming. But Carrie Mulligan keeps calling him and saying stuff like, hey, me again, Carrie Mulligan? I'm vulnerable and have man trouble in every movie. I have no place to stay. Ready? So one night after banging a women's softball team and crashing a feminist hunger strike, see, director thing, <laughs> he comes home and hears music playing. So he grabs a bat and kicks his bathroom door down, and it's Carrie Mulligan having a shower. And she's all, whoa, easy with the bat. It's me. 
And he's all, yeah, I know. Thus the bat. And she's all, oh, Bugsy, how I've missed our creepy sibling dynamic so much. And he's all, can't you get a job and stay somewhere else? And she's all, actually, I'm seeing Planet Hollywood tonight. They were iffy at first because of my lack of references and from my last suicide attempts, all these uh, slash marks on my wrist, forearms, and shoulder blades. But I told them I knew you and how my rend- uh, skip. Come tonight. <clears throat> So he does. He brings the boss, and she sings New York, New York, even though I think they're in Hartford. And when she's done, she joins their table, and his boss is all, Wow, that was so hot. Your brother's tears almost dampened my lust for a second. And she looks at Fassbender, and she's all, Hmm, tears, eh? And Fassbender's all, Yeah, I loved how you turned a 30-second song into a 20-minute ordeal. <laughs> and she's all, Yeah, whatever scene of you running later to piano music. <laughs> 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 that was one of my notes, by the way. I had to scribble in the dark. So she sleeps with his boss and keeps barging into his bedroom to spoon with him while he's masturbating to videos of himself masturbating and giving him speeches about family while he's trying to watch his out-of-focus black-and-white Heckle and Jekyll cartoons. Finally, she walks in on him watching Human Centipede 2 with sandpaper in his hand, and he's all, okay, look, you got to move out. You're cock-blocking me on so many levels lately. And she's all, well, maybe with the black chick, instead of doing a line of coke beforehand, maybe try some Xanax and wine. Just saying. And he's all, look, I don't need my kid sister telling me how to score with a non-kid sister. Uh, so maybe Pinot Noir, you think? Ah, fuck this, I'm out of here. I got a wages of sin montage at three sharp. So he starts a fight at a bar, has sex with a gay biker named Stinky Pete, and has a threesome with Lara Flynn Boyle and the ugly Baldwin brother. Brother. <laughs> the ugly Baldwin brother who found Dreesus. And he's riding the train home afterwards, but the police stop it. He's all, wait a minute, the cops only do this if something horrible is waiting for me at my apartment. So he runs home, <laughs> finds Carrie Mulligan's trying to kill herself again, but with her usual attention to detail. So she's in the hospital while he sits there ranking the nurses, and she opens her eyes and goes, shithead. And he's all, I guess you won this argument. So he goes back to the train, and the hot blonde who could make up her mind about him the week before is there flirtatiously flaunting her wedding ring. And he's all, just like I taught 13-year-old filmgoers this summer through my character's tears in X-Men, biology-based guilt is fairly cinematic. The end. <laughs> Very nice, Kelly Wand. Eh, I knew which part you'd like. and It was a rush to get to it. <laughs> uh, Kelly Wand. Come to the front of the class and tell us what you thought of shame. Uh, maybe this is TMI, but I personally have never been so horny that I wanted to bang a dude. <laughs> Although, I have looked at some holes in trees and gone, hell yeah. So you're saying you could not relate to the subject matter, or the choices but the character made? But it's, it's like Greenberg when everyone said Greenberg's un unsympathetic, and I would go, what are you talking about? <laughs> he's great. I understand is where he's coming from in the re restaurant when they sing Happy Birthday and he has a tan. And in this, when he tells that uh, girl that his longest relationship is four months, I went, oh, dude, that's a success story. <laughs> so you could relate to this character. Well, except that he gets laid constantly. And he finds it boring. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, how do you? Not every person you sleep with is a lifer. I mean, you want the blonde chick for then, and then you want to. When you're 55, you want Edith Bunker because she's a homemaker. So, uh, aside from like relatability or not, uh, how did you think it was as this sort of treatment of? Uh, I would call this a, a movie about sex and existentialism. Uh, we've all seen movies like that, I presume. How did you think it ranked amongst movies like that, Kelly Wand? Well, you can make that into one word, you know. Sexistentialism. <laughs> Dingus, you're a genius. Yeah. <laughs> Let's market that. Dingus is our Cronenberg. Let's put that on a keyword on IMDb. Sexistence. Yeah. Uh, so, Kelly, you know the Cronenberg comparison? There, there's an interesting one. But how, did, how did you feel it ranked up there with uh, other similar movies? I'm just trying to get a bead on, does Kelly Wan like shame or does he not like shame? Kelly Wan loves shame. Aha! Okay, good. But it's almost like, uh, I think we were talking a week or two ago about how Requiem for a Dream is like totally unerotic mm-hmm. or what's going on in it. And in this... Uh, he didn't make it look wretched enough, maybe. Because <laughs> he just had this pick of the litter wherever he went. Like, he went from hot girls to dudes, like, with no middle ground. Like, there's about seven or eight steps that I would put in between those, <laughs> personally. But he was kind of binging out. I don't know. Uh, it's a great movie, though. You should see it. And uh, the acting's great. Uh, Carrie Mulligan, great job. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was hung like Michael Fassbender, I'd make an NC-17 movie myself. Now, how do you know how well hung Michael Fassbender is? Because you see, if you see a guy's dick when he's standing, he's not even facing you. He's pretty well hung. That's my <laughs> He takes a pee, and we see the butt side, and you see most of his dick from there, from that angle. So, you know, I can see his dilemma. But I don't know how women know that. Is it just because he's tall? <laughs> so this is, these are the things I was thinking about while the rest of the audience and the director and Andrew Garfield, who saw our screening, uh, were all thinking, oh, God, what a horrible life it must be to be Michael Fassbender. But at the same time, you know, oh, look, he really pulled out all the stops for this acting uh, that he's having awesome sack because it looks like he's he knows what he's doing i mean he's pleasing a lot of women <laughs> kelly Wand, have you seen uh steve mcqueen's previous movie hunger i haven't because michael sounded, all right it sounded like it it's not the kind of thing you'd want to watch after eating dinner and so it, just, it can be a tough watch but but hold that thought uh dingus your turn what did you think of shame would you be in the kelly wand camp uh, i would have to uh Pitch my tent elsewhere, I'm afraid. Oh, Where would you pitch your tent? Tell us a little bit, Dingus, about where you would position your campsite and how you would set it up. Well, I think you would be able to guess, um, although you you um, you said this is about sex and existentialism, and I would put it in a category having nothing to do with sex, but in a movie category that I have a hard time with, and that is... <laughs> I didn't even know you were going to go here, Dingus, but I like no, no, I, I like your way of thinking. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dingus, because this is well put. Uh, <laughs> Where do you think we're going to go? Well, you, would you? What category would you put this movie in? What would you call? This isn't a sex existentialism movie. What would you call this? See, Tom already knows what you're going to say. He might. He might not. 
I would call this addicts or tedious movie. <laughs> uh, all right, and so so this is so one of the things going in this movie that Kelly Wan spoiled for us is that it was about a sex addict. Um, and Dingus, you have coined. I like it better. The junkies are tedious. Oh yes, junkies. Junkies are tedious. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and that that's like a genre of movies. The junkies are tedious movie. And you thought that Shame kind of had that same kind of set of baggage. I think I think it really does. Uh, although I think it has much more to recommend it, and there are things I loved about it. Um, but I think that in the end, it 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 kind of just hangs on that on that uh, on that coat hanger for me. Mm-hmm. You know what? I hadn't even thought of it that way, Dingus. But I'm gonna. I'm. Is there room in your camp for me? Oh, yeah, I think a... you might you might be able to come over here if you have. You're this gonna have to pitch every your own week tent, now. Uh, so yeah, I, I I felt the same way, Dingus. I really really like the performances. I love the way Steve McQueen shoots scenes. Uh, I like his his eye. Um, I didn't care much for the material. I didn't have as far as being a sex existentialism movie, a movie about sex and existentialism. I I it didn't feel it just didn't move me that much. Um, and I thought it was at times awfully contrived. And I thought it ended. I hated the ending uh, because it had one of these kind of – we've talked about some of these uh, ambiguous endings before, and I don't know that this was necessarily – well, yeah, it was ambiguous. I saw it as less ambiguous. Well, I hated the cop out of the ending, which we'll talk about in a minute, and I hated how it it really became a sort of – for a movie about sex and existentialism, the kind of thing that Bernardo Bertolucci might have done back in the the 60s (laughs) or 70s, uh, it really copped out as as it went on and became this kind of melodrama. Uh, and I just thought that that really uh, undercut a lot of what it was trying to do. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm in the dingus camp. So so Kelly Wanda, go ahead. I, well, I just I think you guys aren't necessarily wrong, but um, I wasn't bored, and the acting's really good. So therefore, it's good for me. <laughs> I win. Well, let, let's talk. So that, so we've put our cards on the table. Uh, how well, before we get into some specifics, how well do you guys think this movie will be received? Like, do you think this movie will get Academy Award nominations? Sure. This is the stuff that gets Academy. That's what's annoying about the Oscars to me, is um, any every NC-17 movie gets nominations, doesn't it? Oh, do they? Like what? I don't. I guess I don't have... Didn't Henry and June get something for script? Maybe I'm totally wrong. It's the exact opposite. Uh, Dingus, you're, you're, our, you're our archivist for Academy. Yeah, you the Oscar. Uh, how do you think this will do, and is that true? Has, have MC7, NC-17 movies been recognized before very much? Movies about sex addicts. Always, like in Midnight Cowboy was Best Picture, wasn't it? That was actually. Right, that was, that was rated NC-17. All right, well. But that was also a completely different Academy. That's <laughs> true. Right. <laughs> But this is the Midnight Cowboy of 2011, the same way Transformers is the silent. But, like, but my point is, this is not the Academy that, that, you know, the film industry is very different, the way the Academy interacts with it, the kind of movies that it recognizes. Uh, so, so, Dingus, how do you, where, uh, uh, where do you think this will fall uh, come Academy Award nominations? Um, boy. The thing is that we're not, we're not going to be able to just rely on 10 if, if it were last year and we were just having 10 motion, motion pictures uh, nominated flat 10, it might get a chance, but I don't think so. Yeah, right. Uh, and, uh, oh, 
Rats. I, I say rats because I, I really would like the NC-17 to be a viable way to release a movie, and I would love to see this get a, a Best Actor and Best Director nod, and maybe Supporting Actress for, for Carrie Mulligan. Uh, I don't have a good feel for that kind of thing, so I was turning to Dingus and hoping you might have more encouraging words. I'm more optimistic than Dingus. Well, I think Michael Fassbender has a shot. I mean, you know, it's it's funny to hear Kelly talk about um, Michael Fassbender as uh, you know the the well hung guy that he sees from the back, as opposed to like the way he was describing the excellent rich guy from Hawaii who looks like George Clooney last week. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 just funny to hear those two. Uh, Wait, you don't think- see George Clooney's hog in the other movie. <laughs> you know, but but your description of him in your synopsis was, you know, oh, this poor guy who's a rich guy in Hawaii, and he looks like George Clooney. Oh, we're supposed to feel for him. Right. As opposed to Michael Fassbender, who's really good looking and has a huge honker, and he gets right. late every five minutes. But he's sad. He can't enjoy it. That's the true tragedy. <laughs> well, George bringing... Clooney was pretending to be sad. No. He's having a bad week. Next well, week he'll be... Who's he'll the be Academy going to nominate, uh, George Clooney or Michael Fassbender? <laughs> Academy's stupid. They just arbit- the whole thing's so arbitrary. That's why I can't take that stuff seriously. You know like what? The that, fact that, that cowboy would like you go oh, different academy. Like that's it makes. You know what? Stupid. That actually answers everything that I'm wondering about this movie and the academy. Let's just leave it at the academy is stupid and, and move on. I do want to talk about uh, Michael Fassbender's character. Some uh, I was one of the things I think I liked about the movie is that early on it's not entirely clear what's going on with him and over the course of of a few things being revealed I think I now have a handle on what's going on with the character Uh, so I kind of enjoyed that aspect of the movie quite a bit Uh, I really liked his performance I I think I I, I like the character Um, so so I want you guys to talk about how how did you feel about this this character uh, and what was going on with him uh, Dingus, why don't you start out? How did you feel about the character? And, and tell us a little bit about what did you learn about him? Like, were there any mysteries presented that were solved in the course of the movie? It's a loaded question, but I'm curious what you think of that. Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that I felt about this were, were that was that um, there's a lot of things that happen in this movie that are interesting and really cool flourishes but aren't necessarily pertinent to the story or the storytelling so that you find out, you know, and this is why I didn't say in my mini synopsis anything about a sister. And I think that that's supposed to be a little mini mystery. Um, and for some reason that's sort of held as who is this girl? Who is this girl? Are you going to find out who this girl is? Oh, and he says sister. Okay. It's a sister. Right. Um, and you know, we have another mini mystery about the, the wound on his face, which is sort of something that's a little bit stolen from, um, something that happens in hunger. It, it, wh- wh- where does this wound come from? What's going on with that? Oh, this is where it's come from. And so we're going to build this through the editing, which is really cool editing, but not necessarily pertinent to the story and the music as well. Uh, this guy jogs, as Kelly said, to piano music for some reason, um, which I don't believe he would do, but it's interesting, but not necessarily pertinent. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, we find out, I don't think we find out who he is, really. We find out a little bit at the date. I was pretty frustrated uh, by um, by what we're supposed to take away from this. And I think that the ending is ultimately frustrating because I, I, think, the, I think Steve McQueen's trying to have it like, maybe there's a sense of hope, I don't know. Mm, I didn't get that. 
I got that he's just he's going to pick her up and he's learned nothing and he's unredeemed the end. Well, you know Although what, Kelly Wand, if, if yeah, what, that, that you got that is entirely up to you because the movie doesn't answer that question one way or the other. And that's one of the things that really bothered me about the ending. Presumably what we have here is a look at this character. Uh, there's this arc where you learn things about the character. Uh, and I think one of the big questions posed by the movie is, is he going to change? You know, I, I say it's a movie about sex and existentialism because there's this idea of a man trying to connect with other people. You know, that's part of the existential, uh, the human condition. You know, how do you relate to other people? And he can't do it on a non-sexual level. It's just not part of, of how he's equipped. And it hurts him. It causes him pain. He has this sense of loneliness. Um, you know, that accounts for the, the tear. You know, how he reacts to his sister. I think there's a little bit of a tease of, is this an incest thing? And I think ultimately that's not it. I don't think that. That's, that's the situation. It's just this, this. He feels separated from other people, and he can't connect her, and he doesn't want to. He's not ready to, for whatever reason. Um, so the the ending, then, I think, you know, if we're going to have an arc about this character, part of what the movie should tell us is, does the character change? And it it it. it presents the same there's a bookend you know where the same scene we saw early on in the movie where he chases the woman from the subway we're going to get that at the end but the movie is not going to tell us whether he chases her whether he gets off the train when she does or whether he lets her leave the train and that's a crucial bit of information if you want to tell us a story about a character where the character ends up to, to deliberately withhold that for what i see is no reason whatsoever i, I think is a huge cop-out uh it, so that that drove me bonkers, you know. Did, even if Steve McQueen had just had him cut his eyes away from looking at her, that well, would have been enough been... of a suggestion. Yeah, that would right. suggestion that he he was not. Uh, but he was definitely not. Yeah, but it it it. It, it just cuts off at a point without letting us see what he's going to do when she gets off the train. No, but he doesn't break eye contact, and that means that he is going to. But well, it, looks like, it looks like a bit of a surrender. To me, when he looks up at her, because yeah. she's obviously changed. I mean, her character arc is something that right. actually might have been interesting to watch. You know, from going from an engaged woman who's making these glances and everything she goes through in that first subway scene to being a married woman who is much who has a different demeanor there. That's an there's something going on in her character arc, and his look to her looks almost like a surrender to his nature, but it's not definitive. Well, if I, I just wish that we'd seen him get off the train or do something to make it definitive, because I just, or, I, I wasn't clear on that. Uh, or another, like something where he'd have to put a little effort into it instead of it just falling on him out of the sky like it usually does. Yeah. Like that's another so, thing too. It's like what if he, what if he looked like the guy in Human Centipede two, but he had the same issues. That would have been a very different movie. Very different movie. <laughs> so, so, do you both think then that the um, the incest question is negative? I'm pretty sure on that. Yeah, I think that's I'm, an odd sort of tease. Uh, I wasn't sure on it. I don't know what Tom's talking about. Tom right. and I don't. Tom and Tom and I wear different uh, glasses. We learned last night. So, Dingus, you uh, did you feel that was more open ended, or or did you feel that 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 was a closed book? Uh, I don't think it's a closed book. I don't know where the evidence lies uh, as far as that's concerned, other than the way he acts, uh, the way he reacts to her. I don't think the way she reacts to him, um, the, 
let me say this. The way she reacts to catching him jerking off in the back bathroom makes me think that it isn't. Because she, when she leaves the bathroom, she's kind of giggling. To right. Herself. Like, this is, that was pretty silly. I thought that meant she'd done it before. Well, I thought it meant this is a goofy thing that happens to teenagers, and it just happened to us. How silly is this? It's just right uh, out of like right out of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She was the Phoebe Cates. He was the judge. They never locked the door. Are they fucking idiots? <laughs> exactly. But the way he is constantly reacting makes me feel like, especially when she when she climbs into bed with him, and he's so, uh, I have to leave at this point. Get the fuck out of here. And right. and so. His his reaction is so extreme. Well, you know that actually, Dingus, you've just made me think. I mean, the you know Kelly Wan, you talked about. There's a point in the movie where he's at such depth that he goes into that gay bar uh, and and starts making out with a dude. You know, maybe there's this sense, and I I presume this is what you're getting at, Dingus. I'm sorry to cut you off, but maybe there's this sense that he is so aware of the power of his own impulse and he doesn't trust himself. Uh, that, that maybe he thinks that, that the power of his own impulse might override the, the normal safeguards, that biological safeguards we have against incest. So is that kind of what you're getting at, Dingus, is that maybe he's just so driven that that might be an issue for him? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, because I think what what she's looking for is is simple uh, affection and uh, from her brother. I mean, she asks for a hug from him, and she wants to have a frank discussion, you know, in front of the the blurred out cartoon. And and he can't. He sees it as, or he he coins it in terms of her trapping him and putting him in a corner. And I think that what you're talking about, as far as his impulse is concerned, is right on the money. That seems uh, odd to me. I mean, I, I get what you're saying, Dingus, but it seems what I thought I was watching more was kind of a reveal where this isn't an incest thing, where that's a tease. They, they want you to sort of think that that's maybe the direction it's going at. But instead, he, he genuinely is just terrified of, of actual human contact. Like it's uh, something he's not capable of. He doesn't trust himself with it. He doesn't want to be confronted with it. It's why the same reason he doesn't an, an, return her phone calls. You know, it's not because he's worried he's going to want to fuck her. It's because he just doesn't want that level of contact with anyone. It's just not part of, of who he is and his makeup. And uh, I think he's deliberately cutting himself off. And when she confronts him, when she challenges that by having to stay with him, by wanting to, to, to curl up in bed with him, he just wants no part of it. Uh, so I, I, I kind of like your interpretation, but I don't, I didn't get that one. I kind of felt like it was something different. Uh, and that what we learn about him and his reaction is that it's not an incest thing. It's this really cool little, uh, kind of twist that I liked. And again, it was, I love the way that Steve McQueen unveils this, this twist about his sense of morality. Uh, in that he, uh, you know, he is perfectly willing to use sex as a disposable commodity with no emotional attachment. Uh, you know, the same way you might smoke a cigarette and throw it away. He has that little regard for what it means for 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 the meaning of it, for what it means about how people connect. Um, but when she gets in a relationship with his boss, I think it, the fact that his boss is married, we don't find out until the next day when he is being confronted about pornography. So there's this competing sense of like. He regards sex as a throwaway commodity. She regards it as a way to just connect with someone. The boss, you, you know, he's cheating on his wife. I love this sort of in that one scene of the boss, we have these three competing sort of philosophies about sexuality and people having different opinions about what happened and different bits of information. Um, so I felt like his reaction to her was just being upset at uh, how she was being taken advantage of and how she wasn't sticking up for herself and how she was insinuating herself into his life uh, and that the incest thing was kind of a weird tease. 
No, I, because I, I, she, when when they're watching the TV show, he goes, she, he has a family, and and she she like kind of laughs at him and goes, you're like coming from you, like you're gonna judge my sexuality, and right. so the fact that she would say that means she's obviously witnessed him doing something more than we've seen in the movie. She's well, I think she's anything she, we've seen. Has she popped open the laptop by that point to see the... Yeah, the, but she, you think that's what she's talking about? Well, I think that, that she understands a lot of his history at this yeah, point. Yeah, right. I mean, from my, the, from my point of view, his reaction while David and Sissy are in the other room, I mean, his his reaction as he's climbing into the corner and, and, and getting ready to go jogging, all of those things that lead up to him going jogging, mm-hmm. there, that's mu- there's much more going on there than I think simply... A fear of getting close to another person. I, I think that that, that he's he, he's climbing out of his skin at that point. I mean that that those reactions when he's like it, like in the corner there and pulling off his clothes. I mean there, there's something else going on there. Right, but she's also initially surprised. Like, why are you getting so angry about? Like, she's like she can't. She's surprised that he's acting the way he is. First. Well, I think she's dealing with anger there, and she doesn't understand why he's so angry or why he why it's why his reaction is anger when she needs when she needs her brother or she needs intimacy. Mm. Tom, sorry, uh, I'm standing by my interpretation because I just that the whole incest angle is just so icky and weird and makes it a different kind of movie for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, that I, I just would would like to pretend that I saw a movie that where that was teased and dismissed. Uh, because well, I can, I can get. You're right, Dingus. That whole scene of his frustration at hearing his sister and his boss in the other room. You do think, oh well, he's obviously jealous. He's unsettled by this. Uh, you, you know, his response is so visceral, like you're saying. Um, is is he in any way, shape, or form responsible for her previous suicide attempts? Well, I love that we don't know. By the way, uh, I well, love- I don't think so. I think she. I think that's a key in her last line which is you know we're not bad people we just come from a bad place um you know what what i'm king off of i think this is kind of myself is that i'm constantly thinking why is this film called shame and and so shame when i when i'm thinking of his impulses i'm constantly thinking of the name of the movie right but i think he's also ashamed at not wanting to you know take care of his sister not wanting to you know that whole that whole conversation with the uh it wasn't really blurred out dingus i think it was just out of focus with that cartoon in the background (laughs) which was odd i you know as someone who you know when we had our our three by three on choices the color red i mentioned you know a director pays attention to the color of something and similarly a director pays attention to what's going to be on the tv why on earth did they have some weird ancient obviously public domain cartoon running in the background like that I don't know. I found that a little distracting. Because uh, it's but, something you know he wouldn't watch, so he's not really watching it. He's pretending to. Right. But you could well, have, you could have had a talk show or something on there, but I, I didn't understand that. Uh, but anyway, I think that conversation between the two of them, though, is kind of almost like that middle bit of Hunger. You know, Hunger as a movie is a triptych, and there's a there's this fantastic conversation that is a centerpiece of that movie. So in a way, I kind of thought of that conversation between the two of them on the couch as the centerpiece of, of shame. Uh, where he tells her things like, you, you know, you need to take care of yourself. You are a burden on me. Uh, you, you know, because I, I think what we discover there is he was just so upset that that she was thrown in this this situation. You know, and he was ashamed of being unable to connect with her. Um, 
I don't know. I think it, the fact that it's a cartoon is something to do like that. It's supposed to evoke the sense of they've had this conversation before when they were kids, and so there's like cartoon. Uh, right, right. I think it's just Steve McQueen doing a directorial flourish, and I think he does this a number of times. I really like the way he shoots films. I like the way he puts them together, but I think he sort of falls into a couple of traps here where he's just doing things to do them, and I think that. Unfortunately, when I was watching that scene with that uh, that out of focus cartoon in the background, I just felt like he's shooting this just to shoot it this way, and not to not as part of telling the story. I thought it was reflecting his state of mind, being out of focus, and uh, pretending that it was he was watching something. Well, Kelly, one I do like the fact that you, what you mentioned it being a cartoon and that sort of their childhood is in the background. You know, their childhood is in the background of the conversation and of the actual shot. Uh, so I, I like that that idea, and I really though admire the fact that he can shoot. You know, it's the back of their heads, basically. And they turn yeah. towards each other a few times, but I kind of like that we're being deprived from really being able to see their faces. That yeah. in this scene, they have to reveal their faces to us, the audience, by turning to the side. Uh, I love the tension in that. And you're right, Dingus, like, I, I think he does a lot of stuff for this kind of artist's sake. And Steve McQueen was, uh, like, he did this kind of, like, funky modern art stuff before he made movies. Um, so he's definitely got that in his background. Uh, and well, like I put that, the jogging tracking shot in the same thing. There's but, a, but I, a date too. All these single shots. Single I date. love the jogging tracking shot though. For uh, and you know I've never been to New York City, so I don't have a sense for that. But just for the the, the way that if you're going down the street, you're you're peering into little slices of other lives, and he he played with that a little more, where he's just looking at windows and people having sex and whatnot. But I just loved the look of that that scene. Uh, I think he did too, but I don't yeah, think it. Yeah. I mean, I think as opposed to the scene you're talking about in Hunger, which there's, I think, a definite reason that we sit on that scene without moving for as long as we do. It's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, I can watch it over and over again. I think that the, for me, watching the jogging tracking shot, it just feels like I can do this, so I'm going to do it. I like what you're saying about the little slices that you see, right. but it still feels like I, I can drive a car along and, and, and have this flourishing piano music playing <laughs> until we get to one light where he has to stop and he goes on. It just, it just feels, again, like I, I'm just going to do this to do it. Well, let me grant you this, Dingus. Here's what I th- a lot of what I think is going on here is uh, hunger is, of course, about the, the, the troubles in Ireland and the uh, the, the hunger strikes and, and the, the conditions that led up to them, the decision to do them, and then the hunger strike itself. That's the triptych of that movie. Uh, and just as subject matter, that was obviously something. Stephen Queen is British. Uh, he's a black guy, so he obviously has... I, I, I say obviously, I don't know, but ah. I, I imagine. Well, I, I wonder as you know, does he have this as as a black fella? Does he have this this sense for being an outsider that that is maybe part of what is going on with Ireland? And so Britain? he's hung too. Um, nice, Kelly Wand. Uh. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but at any rate, I think that the subject matter and hunger just feels so much more important in a way than the subject matter here where dingus your junkies are tedious comment is i think spot on you know oh a good looking guy can't connect to his family and he's having sex all the time i mean i i think there's but as far as like the, the subject matter uh there's just a lot more weight to what is going on and it kind of earns some of its more artsy choices a lot more than i think shame does um and there's a lot of good dialogue i thought so that kind of I can be I can be bought, and that's one of the things that will that will trick mm-hmm. me into liking. So Kelly Wan, you mentioned the waiter scene. Uh, what you you did like that? What made that work for you? When the waiter said, uh, "By the way, I mentioned those crabs uh, come in shells or something." 
Kelly, does, talking does about that scene pretty. belong in this movie? Fuck yeah. It's great, because it's the most we learn about him. It's the most... See, she kind of gets the shit into the stick, because she, like, is the is the only girl in the movie who kind of goes, well, this guy's not that great, actually. <laughs> she she kind of gets bitched by him on two dates. Uh, keep going. Because yeah, I, I, I'm with you here, Kelly Wan. So does the scene belong so it belongs because you like her character? Go ahead. Uh, can you think of other reasons the scene belongs? Because I'm... I, I, I'm 110% in love with that scene. I think it belongs, absolutely. But I'm not saying the smart things you want to say. No, 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 no. I, I, I agree. I mean, that's right. As far as, like, her character, this is where, where we find out their competing philosophies. Absolutely. Right, right. And I, I, I mean, junkies are tedious, but, I mean, cults are tedious, and I was interested in the cult, too, and in the John Hawks movie. Well, the like, junkies are tedious comment, I mean, that's, that like, movies about junkies are tedious because junkies are tedious. I mean, that's... You know, that's a well-worn genre. If you find cults tedious, that's fine, but there aren't that many cult movies to earn its own genre name. Uh, there aren't. I don't think so. But Kelly Wan, so also I, I think one of the things that I loved about that scene is uh, it shows that, that whole the whole courtship situation that I think all of us have dealt with before where you're at a dinner and the waiter keeps coming over I mean it, it really does kind of show just how absurd that dance dating is, is kind of yeah like, like dating um, and he's trying to make a go of it and he's obviously interested in her but uh, I, I just loved the sort of the pairing and the back and forth and the way the waiter was coming up it really did yeah. show what what you know, modern mating rituals are, are like. I just thought it was so sharply observed. Yes. Uh, and so I feel like it belongs in that regard. And it also belongs in that it, it does reveal a lot about both characters so that when he makes that decision to throw away all of his porn, and by the way, why does a dude who, have, who has the internet still have so many magazines? What was up with that? Mm, it's a different thing. I guess so. But I can what, understand it. It, it does show why he makes that decision and to then pursue her. Uh, I also liked it on, remember the, how awesome the date is in Taxi Driver, where we know De Niro's nuts, but Sybil Shepard doesn't yet, and so she's kind of like drawn to his strangeness. Sure. And there's a lot of that in that scene, too. And you, it's like she doesn't, like the first weird thing he says is, you know, I don't know why people get married now. And she's all, huh, wait, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> like up until, and so he's saying all this kind of crazy shit, and she's finding it kind of charming. So, uh, so, Dingus, did you feel it didn't belong, or did you just feel it was, like, too gratuitously drawn out? Or, or too what? funny, maybe. Like, distractingly funny. No? Uh, the self-indulgent part of me loved the waiter. And, and saying asking whether the scene belonged is probably the wrong thing to ask, because the I love the arc of their relationship. Um, all, you know, from her asking, do you like the sugar? Ugh, and how... Sugar how sexy and awkward she is because she's fragile. Uh, I love the arc of their relationship, mm -hmm. you know, from, from her finding out that he doesn't believe in relationships and going cold. And then them so, sort of doing this weird, uh, we're going to pretend that it works kind of thing until we get to the subway. I love that. But I just thought the waiter kind of jumped in from a Seinfeld episode and I like the guy and I liked getting a chance to laugh. And I like watching Michael Fassbender look at the wine glass, like, what are you what? doing? Yeah. 
Um, all of walk. that is great, but it but it feels well, self indulgent to me because I think the guy's amusing. I don't think he belongs in this movie though. Wow, Dingus Dingus would have put that Dingus poor actor out of work. He would have I, I, I would have sent him back to Army Wives. You can go back and do that show. Or whatever. I don't like self indulgence in my junkies that are tedious movies. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like being able to laugh. I, I I enjoy you know laughing with my friends sitting next to me because that guy was funny and and him poking his head in every now and then to go so the wine hey uh, that, that that's funny but I don't think it fits you know and yeah, well, uh, those things that felt like Steve McQueen uh, just for whatever reason didn't wasn't in control of this story in the way that he was in control of Hunger. Maybe he just wanted to do a funny scene because he needs one funny scene to make the movie not as depressing. <laughs> Dingus, I bet you also hated, uh, I almost said Michelle Williams, uh, you hated Carrie Mulligan's little gleeful stomp on the subway uh, yeah, platform. Heartless you, bastard. Yeah, you probably would have no. cut that out too. You would have sent her home and you would have said, hey, that stuff works on Modern Family. Still bought the fl- Ooh, but don't do that here. Since I don't watch Modern Family Warfare 3, I don't know what you're talking about. But I love that scene. I love where she tries to, to flick the fluff off of it, and he's like, leave it. Uh, see? I liked that. I liked that that sense of – because at that point, I still don't know what the relationship is. I don't right. know who she is to him. Um, again, I'm not sure why that has to be a little mystery other than it's a clever little mystery. Uh, but I like it. I like the things that are going on. I like the little chemistry that's developing and how we're uneasy about it. And I like the arc of the relationship with him and Marianne, too. I just That, that one character is an example for me of a, a number of little things that just felt like we're doing them because they're – they're, they're interesting, but they're not necessarily pertinent. But we also need to see that he can even laugh. Like, I think we like, like, he has likable qualities. And without that scene, he's just, he's pure hateful. You know what? Explain, you guys, explain to me uh, the tear during the New York, New York scene. Who wants to tackle that? <sighs> I didn't get that. Okay. I thought then, Magneto. Uh, so that's right. So, Dingus, uh, explain to me he thought of Magneto. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. I didn't think it was bad. I just thought. All right, let me let me ask you this. Thought, I answer Kelly Wand Kelly Wand thought that uh, James McAvoy was off screen making him cry. Yeah, <laughs> using his superpowers. All right, Dingus, well, get in here. He sang in his ear. Radar Tower. <laughs> uh, enlighten us, Dingus. But what did you make of the tear? Dingus was, is our tear specialist. Remember what the line was that James McAvoy says in his ear. The, the gap between uh, empathy and uh, no, never mind. All right, so <laughs> uh, before I answer how I what I think about the tier, let me ask this of you. Uh, first, starting with you, Tom, what did you think of her performance? Just, just not not her acting performance of her of her singing okay. of that song. What did you think of that of that performance? Uh, a classic example of how the movie was self-indulgent. Uh, I thought, wow, what kind of nightclub is it where somebody gets up to do this long self-indulgent rendition of yeah. New York, New York? It's down. That's room. their whole act. And the room falls completely silent. <laughs> you know, right. nobody, you could hear a pin drop. And by golly, you couldn't, not just because everyone was quiet, but because she would stop singing for so long. You know, there were so many pauses in that song. Uh, so I, I did not need that. I, uh... What you thought about the waitress, Dingus, I thought about that rendition of New York, New York. Waitress, not waitress. Waiter, waiter. Yeah, sorry. Kelly, do you think, uh, did you think that was a good uh, singing performance? Do you think she can, uh, you think she would have been advanced on American Idol? 
<laughs> no, but maybe she's not supposed to be good. She's just supposed to depress you while you eat. That's why she's got the job. So, what, Dingus, are you going to, like, because I don't think I would know the answer to this, but could she not sing or something? Like, is that what you were getting at? Yeah, I think she's terrible. Okay. I mean, she, her, her pitch wavers. She can't really hold a note for more than a couple of seconds. And it's a horrible rendition of a, of a standard song. And that's, that's apparently her set. She gets up and she does that song, and uh, that's it. Right. Uh, and that's so awesome. all I can think of when I'm watching a tear, a Magneto tear, go down his face is maybe it's just the way he's hearing it from their childhood. You know, right. maybe, maybe he's hearing this little girl sing. And that's what he's hearing, and it's not necessarily what everybody else is hearing, and we're privy. I really wish if that were the case, I think I'm being overly generous here, I wish if that were the case we would have had some some interesting things going on in editing. But all I can think of is if you're going to make us sit through that entire rendition of that horribly done song, (laughs) and we're not like in a Woody Allen musical – uh, all I can think of is maybe we're supposed to be hearing it from his point of view, and that's why he, he's he's hearing his little sister and dealing with his you know his impulses as well. I don't know. I don't like that song. See, I didn't think it was the impulses again. I just thought it was his loneliness, his inability to connect, uh, him sort of feeling threatened by her staying with him. It, it was just like a sort of a chink in the armor. Uh, um, and and I agree with you, Dingus, in that it, it it's not very clear. It's an odd choice. I don't. Uh, yeah. Uh, if he really yes. really is that cut off from connection to family, why does he have a tear when she's singing a not very good self indulgent song? Yeah. You guys are cut off for not appreciating his tear, you uh, <laughs> fast benders. Uh, I will say, you know, Dingus uses the word uh, heat a lot when he talks about, like, uh, an actor and actress working together. Uh, And so do you guys think – who do you think he had more heat with? Uh, What's the – what was the black woman's name, Dingus? The actress? Do you remember – do you know the actress's name? Her name is Nicole – I don't know how you say her last name. It's Bahari. Okay. So does he have more heat with Nicole Bahari, Carrie Mulligan, or James McAvoy? Uh, you guys may find he's just so good though. Here's the, I like I love so so when we watch movies where there's really no as Dingus says I love this word where there's no heat with an actress where you've got the the lead actor and actress and it, it's just not convincing they're not selling anything. You know what this is this should be the bottom line. You know what what he does with the actresses in this movie should be the bottom line for what you expect when you're going to show people either in love or about to have sex or whatever in a movie. Uh, I I just um. thought. Any any one of them, you mean, or no? As far as like uh, having setting up chemistry, you know, where it looks like people really like each other, uh, or there's like a sense of a connection. What Michael Fassbender is able to do with the actresses in this movie, I I mean, that's he's so good, and you should you should expect that anytime you go see a major motion picture where you're you're supposed to be looking at two people who are in love. Uh, You know, I just watch how good he is. As opposed to well, that's actually a great. A great point because I think I think he uh, he modu- he modulates that perfectly, especially with Marianne. Because when you think of um, it's, it feels a little oogie for me to say this, but when you think of the heat he has with Katie Jarvis, yeah, in Fish Tank, I mean, and and that's inappropriate on a different level. But I, I what I what I think is happening, I love the way again the arc of the relationship with with Nicole Barry or uh, with Marianne. In that 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 uh, that sex scene they have, where she's so awkward and she's so fragile, and they're trying to be hot, and I mean, I I think that that that's 
um, that's deliberate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he's just so he's so good with uh, just with that chemistry, but also the sense of physicality that he has. Um, he's just he's an electric actor, uh, and uh, you know uh, even. Even in kind of Jane Eyre, which is sort of a little oh, forgettable yeah. for me, but him and Mia Wasikowska in Jane Eyre, that same kind of thing, uh, as restrained as they were by the material there. Uh, and, and by the way, that physicality that he, ha- that he has, part of what, what makes hunger so good is how it subverts that. You know, because he plays a, a hunger-striking uh, prisoner, uh, and you, you see you know, the, the, the physical lengths that, that he goes to in that movie. Um, there's a there's an early uh, there's a this is I think before he had done many movies but there's a British horror movie called Lake Eden which kind of does the same thing he seems like a very powerful physical character and the way they subvert that in Lake Eden is great uh, you guys have made fun of me before because I frequently bring up Tom Hardy fighting a Minotaur in a movie called Minotaur this actually exists <sighs> I now want to put on the table uh, uh, Michael Fassbender plays a Nazi zombie warlock who lays this isn't funny this is real he lays serious. he lays siege to a farmhouse in a Joel Schumacher movie called Blood Creek so Nazi zombie warlock My, if you want to see Michael Fassbender as a Nazi zombie warlock not necessarily in that order i think he could shuffle up he could be a warlock zombie nazi uh, he's those three things i don't know where you want to prioritize which of those he is but uh, blood creek so I'm recommending that. Uh, and the, one of the guys he lays siege to, Superman. So to speak. Oh, <laughs> Superman. The Henry new Superman, who, yeah, who Dingus loved in The Immortals. Uh, I didn't realize it was him until I, I went to, to verify the name of the movie, because I'd forgotten. But Henry Cavill is laid siege to by Nazi zombie warlock Michael Fassbender in Blood Creek. You know, it's you, a 1v1 were... siege. <laughs> he, he enlists zombie horses. That's not a lie, by the way. Oh, like Spielberg. You know, I think you were kind of making a joke, but uh, now I remember, you know, when we're talking about Michael Fassbender and chemistry, his chemistry with James McAvoy was one of the, my favorite things about that movie. No, I wasn't making a joke at all. I mean, I was making right. a joke about bringing up women, but no, absolutely. The guy's uh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, absolutely. His chemistry with James McAvoy was the only thing I really cared for in, in that movie. Um, right. So, yeah. If he hadn't done the coke, he would have been able to... He would have been fine. Because <laughs> that's the only time he, we see him do it. He doesn't need it for the gay dude. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the sexuality in this movie. So what did you guys think of the... Uh, wh- how do you feel... <laughs> Kelly Wong? Favorite? How, how do you feel about full frontal nudity of dudes? It's not that big a deal. I think people... I think this country's stupid for giving shit about that stuff. Because, look, I mean, you see your own every day. You know? <laughs> Speak for yourself. You learn a lot about sex from movies like this. <laughs> <laughs> Educational. I, I, um, I briefly considered, like, asking, you know, hey, you guys want to just uh, all show up? And I, I've got a screener of this. Let's all show up and watch this together. And then as I'm sitting there watching the movie in a movie theater, I'm thinking, can you imagine three of us on a couch watching this? <laughs> I almost suggested Just that, that Kelly Wand could invite his mother. <laughs> Everyone else has. Oh. 
Oh, oh yeah. Ooh, ooh. She just so, awesome. so part of the problem for that with me, uh, you know, I love those early scenes. I'm like, you know what? If the actor is going to fully bear himself for the movie, great. Let's do that. Let's go with that. And I applaud, you know, when when Carrie Mulligan shows up, there she's completely naked, standing there, and I I love that kind of like no nonsense nudity in a movie. I, I appreciate right. that. Um, however, then the problem for me kind of comes near the uh, and no pun intended climactic uh, threesome. Uh, at the end, where he's you know sort of in the depths of his isolation or despair or whatever, uh, and he's gone and I don't know where he drummed up these two women, but there's that threesome, and as you're watching it, you know there you can see some uh, topless women, you can see breasts in that, that's fine, um, but the way it's it's cut, go on, I'm listening. <laughs> We're not allowed to see an erect penis. Exactly. The way that that oh, right, right. is so carefully shot to cut away every time you're going to see genitalia. Now, yeah. we all know what that kind of stuff looks like. We've, either, we've done right. it, seen it. Like So at, at that point, it, Dreamed becomes about very, it. it becomes very conspicuous that we're watching th- that no longer this, this early mandate. You know what? We're just going to lay it all out there. It becomes very conspicuous that that's all missing. That's all gone. That goes out the uh-huh. window. And I feel that... I don't. That, I just hated the way that was shot at that point, and I feel like if you're going to do that, you sh- they should have just held on his face the entire time, which they did for the climactic. Or his dick the entire time. The other extreme. And you, 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 you can't do that. So why? Well, I hate- I don't get that. If you already have the NC-17, why not just go in for a penny, in for a pound? Fuck it. We, we know it. Okay, sure, absolutely. I would, you know what? Like uh, the opening of Antichrist. The Lars von Trier movie. Boy, there, there's your in for a penny, in for a pound. I don't see movies with prefixes and hyphens. <laughs> uh, but so- uh, you're right, that's a good point. And it's like, we still can't, it's still prudish. It's, yeah. Well, and I even noticed uh, when he goes into the uh, the the gay bar. It's not a gay. I mean, whatever you call it. I don't know what you call those places. When he goes into the men's club or whatever. Uh, uh, it's called Zoo Club. Ha ha. Uh, it's, it's like there, there's a similar scene in the opening of uh, Irreversible, and I'm pretty sure you see plenty. Of, actually, I don't know. Is there nudity and like like there, you would one of the things that they tried to show us in this scene in Shame, where he goes in the gay club, uh, are dudes with a, like a glory hole kind of thing, uh, and it's you. Tough. You see stuff like you, you you see how coyly shot it is, so that we're not going to ever see a penis in there. Uh, and no peggings. Uh, it just feels like it suddenly okay. became. It just feels like it suddenly became an R-rated movie uh, instead of an NC-17. After after laying everything bare early on, it felt like they were Indian givers. Ooh, Whoa. racist! It reminded me of that poker scene in Louis, um, where the guy is describing the hotel meetings where the guys would all stand around and jerk off onto the hotel floor. And we're going down through this club, and we're just seeing images through curtains, and we finally get uh, an actual full-on kiss, um, which, uh, you know, I'm happy to be able to see that kind of a thing. But you're right, they are coy about all of those things, and coy about erect penises and all of that. And I don't know if if they're uh, grandfathering this under the idea of, well, we didn't show any of the porn on his computer either. You know, he's constantly hearing... It's very tastefully, uh... <laughs> and and maybe they're trying to hide behind that, but I don't see that there's any reason why we don't see that other right, than right. you know, it's it's a difficult thing to expect a male actor to be able to do. 
you know, the, that's sort of a part of performance that is just... There's your Oscar. That's just physically motivated that has nothing necessarily to do with acting. So it's th- there is sort of a touchy sort of situation going on there, but I don't understand why that last that last scene is shot like Cinemax instead of the way the rest of the movie is shot. Yeah. Uh, you know, Diggis, you mentioned you know, them not showing the porn that he watches on his computer. I thought, oh, they're just kind of trying to depersonalize it and make it seem how like noncommittal it is. But then they show the ridiculous scene where he turns on his computer and apparently has some uh, two-way sex chat thing already booted up like ready to go oh you his girlfriend (laughs) what the heck was that i actually have no idea how that like video sex chat stuff works but i seriously doubt that if you just turn on your computer there's going to be some woman waiting there with a two-way connection and if she sees another woman she goes oh it's your girlfriend hey like her script is hey let's get it all right i know what your boyfriend likes and the thing is we do see her like that we definitely see her on his computer yeah and she's wearing panties (laughs) What kind of, uh, why does he have, like, his work, they're glass walls on the office, and he works in an office with another dude. How is, why does he apparently have so much porn on his work computer in those environments? Because he's an addict. He's dumb. When is he ever going to be able to watch it? Like, he's in a glass office, Kelly Wan. That whole building, he can see several offices over to look at, I I just, that made. There's a lot of ways you can do it, Tom. I don't know if you know. (laughs) It's all about the angle. And alt tab. Spoiler <laughs> All right. Uh, and David going through that list. That was another thing. David going through the list of things they found in his computer. It was just so precious of him being able to say double penetration, cream pie, whatever that is. He's going through this whole litany. Really? Come on. <laughs> that did kind of seem like that. That was from the same movie as The Waiter, Dingus. So you're saying that they laid the groundwork <laughs> right there for The Waiter to show up later on. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I, I really hated the music in this. Can anybody defend it? I don't even remember it. What was the music? Oh, you, are you just talking about the uh, like the classical York, music that he played on his fashionable vinyl? Uh, he was not playing on the fashionable vinyl. He was playing like '80s weird hits. Um, the incidental music. There was some that was. Uh, there was some early on that was composed for it that had this weird ticking sound in the background. Oh, but oh then, yeah. There no, was, you know what it was? Hold on. About that that music with the weird ticking sound, almost like, not tone for tone, but note for note. I don't know, how, however you talk about music. It was so much like a similar thing from Hans Zimmer's soundtrack for Thin Red Line. Yeah. I almost thought it was the same thing at a few occasions. Uh, so so go ahead. So that I, I liked just because it reminded me of Thin Red Line. I'm not sure it necessarily worked. Uh, but what was the other part of the music you were going to mention? But then I don't know why it just lapses into these this you know classical music was it to save money it just you know who <laughs> who goes running to that music for one thing and then the the other yeah. music would just swell in and it just felt inappropriate it felt like you know it, this is uh, not under copyright so we can use it i i didn't understand any of that and i was hoping one of you guys could defend it i like running to night ranger one, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty degrees, and I'm caught in between, counting one, two, three, pouring out of three, getting down with three, the peak, everybody loves Really? Huh. <laughs> That's awesome. I didn't think that. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. so awesome. <laughs> Tom, 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 Tom. <laughs> Kelly Wad, uh, have I mentioned lately that you're a national treasure? 
the one thing I didn't say that was about dicks and vaginas. Uh, <laughs> Night Ranger. <laughs> a gentler time. If you think Night introduce... isn't about dicks and vaginas. Huh? <laughs> All right, put the dick in the vagina over there. Little uh, May West. Kelly Wad, why don't you introduce this week's 3x3? Three three? What, what do you got for us? Uh, I'm introducing it. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present this 3x3 three three topic I came up with last week, much to Tom's uh, chagrin and disgust. Oh, yeah, remember the first line of the movie was, you're disgusting? <laughs> Another thing I can relate to. Um, this is uh, top three transitions. <laughs> Did you understand this at all? I felt like yeah, I, I gave examples not only off the table. Not, yeah, not only did I understand it, I uh, I kind of cheated by knocking one of the things off the table that I knew if it wasn't brought up, it should have been brought up, and I just wanted to make sure we didn't talk about that. So, yeah, I understand it. I love it. I don't know why you think I'm just... What do you mean? Uh, so I, I think one of... Uh, I, I would say one of probably the most famous, bold, audacious transitions in all of history is that cut in 2001, and I just wanted to make sure, because we talked about 2001 last week, uh, that we just didn't necessarily talk about it again. <laughs> so uh, isn't that one of the most famous transitions ever, wouldn't you say? That cut from the bone to the, the satellite in uh, 2001. Yeah. I also think it's the tran- movie transition that covers the longest period of time. A million years or so, yeah. Like, I think two million years since uh, Austropithecus or whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> to beat that, you'd have to go from the Big Bang to the heat death of the universe somehow geometrically, like a circle. Mm. Uh, he's talking. Oh, no. Uh, so, yes, I, I definitely understood it. Now, uh, you'll go last, but I'll be curious why you picked this particular topic, Kelly Wand, I assume. So did I do the right That's thing? The by the way, Would you have put 2001 on your list if I hadn't have mentioned it? I did put on my list, but not that one. Because oh, the other transition is terrible. It's got a title card and everything. No. 18 months later, discovery. Because the, no. the, the cut That's from the, the other one you remember? The cut from the monolith to the oh, if you're going to do something at the last thirty minutes, I haven't seen that in forever. I'd uh, let's so. do. Well, why don't you do your stupid nonsense and we'll see what happens, won't we? All right, we will. Well, actually, Dingus is going <laughs> first, first because he uh, is introducing next week's topic. So, Dingus, did you understand the topic and are you disgusted by it? Hmm. Uh, I did understand it, um, and I think I failed at it, and mm-hmm. that makes me disgusted. Wow. I owe because you guys. A I, I think that there, there's like. I can I can sort of grasp at this, like there's a plane and it's flying across the screen and it's one plane and then oh now it's another plane, and I I think I I just failed at this topic. That's fine. I've choked on uh, um, usually. I don't understand why. How did you? How could you fail at this topic? Well, I guess we'll find out. What is well, your, well, because I was thinking of specific. I I was imagining specific things he's seeing, like a calendar that flips a page and it's a new it's a new time it's like a an actual visual transition uh and and um and i didn't push hard enough to go for that specific thing mine are a little bit more conceptual except for number three well you know what dingus i guess we're going to be the judge of that aren't we yeah i guess so and the executioner (laughs) all right so dingus what is your number three let's find out whether or not you did fail all right uh i've got a quote for you guys for my number three yes sweet Mm. all right here it goes Come along, Mrs. Thornhill. What? Oh, wait, that's a great one. Jane Eyre. You're crazy for not thinking you did good. That's an awesome one. You should be very proud of your achievements. That should be number one. Tom's an idiot for not even knowing what you're talking 
Yeah, I have no idea what that is. Come, come along. I know what it is. Thornhill? I know the the name gives it away, and then I it's a famous. Uh, it's a classic transition. Well, I've never Tom, seen it. Yeah, you have. You have guaranteed. All right, guaranteed. Give it away. What is it? All right. Um, the guy talking is Cary Grant. What? No, I've never seen a Cary Grant. Steve Marie Saint. Yeah. So the transition. Oh is... no, no, I have seen this one. The the Statue of Liberty. No, the uh, the president head. Mount thing. Rushmore. The, the Mount Rushmore thing. Yeah. Right. God, yeah, I've seen you this. are so so Statue slow. Of Liberty. Liberty. It would have been Dullard. awesome on the Statue of Liberty. I was I was confusing it with the uh, Adventures of Remo Williams. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's Statue of Liberty, right? I know. Yeah, see? See, you guys thought I was a fool. I know what I'm talking about. How come that movie's never on cable? So what's the name of this one? I forget. The uh, by Northwest, the yes, stupidest yes. title ever, and which what's makes that? it even awesomer. <laughs> it's not a stupid title because it's from Hamlet. Uh, what's the, what's the, what's the transition? Oh, There's no transition in that movie. Good. All right, the transition, and and I, I remember when I first saw it, I just thought this is that's so cheesy, and the what? the transitional moment is when um when he has to save Ibrahim Saint from falling off of the Statue of Liberty, as you say, Tom, <laughs> yeah. and um and you don't see him save her, you just see him go, come on, come on, Mrs. Thornhill, and he. And he's pulling her up under the top bunk of the train. It's it's a transition from they're on the face of Mount Rushmore. Ah, good. Having and, sex, married, and and he pulls her up. You know, calling her by his his last name because they've gotten married. And uh, at first, I just thought because it's so cheesy the way um, the dialogue happens. It doesn't match with his with his face, and you don't see what actually happens. You don't see her being saved. You just see that moment. But but. When you watch it again and again, it's just such a great. Um, it's just it's it's just so great how Hitchcock is talking about movies. You know, he's he's talking about transitions in that moment. Really, uh, it, you know, it's it's this. Uh, I just come to love how it's offset against that earlier tension of you know Martin Landau standing up there and and. Cary Grant saying, help me, and Martin Landau, and you see Martin Landau's shoe on his foot and how slowly his shoe turns over, and that ridiculous deus, that ridiculous deus ex machina of the guy shooting him, of shooting Martin Landau, and then that perfect mix of thriller and comedy that, that uh, Hitchcock does so well, that I just, I, I've come to really love that. I think we, I don't know, maybe you weren't there, but I think I, I actually got to see that at that at one of those graveyard screenings. No, of course I was there. That's the, that's the first time I've seen it, I think, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so I really I like that weird cheesy transition, and that's that's he's he's doing that on purpose, you know all that all that stuff that he does with you know James Mason. I, I don't know. I just I, it's like the opposite of rope, where it's all one shot. In that shot, he spares you the boring uh, <laughs> sequence of him pulling her up and a boring sequence of them getting married. You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Very good. Great, that's a, that is a good one, Dingus. So, uh, Dingus, I think we both agree you, you haven't failed so far. You've got two more chances to fail. Oh, good. <laughs> that's a classic uh, example of the form. So the, the fact that Dingus would, would moan. Well, he's uh, got, uh, Kelly Wand, he's got two more that are better. So stand or, by for that. Or, all, right. all right, my number three choice uh, is, uh, I'll give you a line. Oh, wait, no, hold on, I have to think of it. Okay, you ready? Here's the line. That's something else. Hmm. Well, you're like <laughs> you love you. you love alien music. <laughs> Dingus. So uh, this is a. Do you know the transition in this movie, Dingus? So that's a line from Punch Drunk Love. Uh, and can you guys think of any great transitions here? Because this one definitely occurred to me early on. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
I just saw this movie, and I have no idea what transition you're talking about, which maybe is a reflection on me. So this is the transition to Utah. So later on in the late in the movie, uh, Barry Egan, played by Adam Sandler and Emily Watson, they've they've hooked up, uh, and this plot that he's got involved with about a sex worker. Uh, comes to sort of visit him and she gets hurt in the process so he tracks down the sex worker and he has to speak to her supervisor it turns out it's philip seymour hoffman from a mattress store in utah and they have a shouting match over the phone and adam sandler is so enraged that he charges out of the office where he's making the call still holding the phone up to his head and you see it yanking the cord loose from the phone and he charges out of the frame uh and eventually it cuts. There's a, this sort of swirl, this kaleidoscopic swirl of color that P.T. Anderson does a few times in the movie. And John Bryan's, Bryan's? I think John Bryan's music swells. And then it cuts to Adam Sandler still holding the phone, walking into the mattress store in Utah, having walked all the way without letting loose of the phone to confront uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Utah. I love that transition. It's absurd. It makes no sense. You know, if you're a stickler for a movie existing on kind of the same plane of reality, that might bother you. But I, I adore that kind of, uh, that, that kind of liberty uh, that, that the movie takes there. And I love that transition. So there you go. There's my number three. You don't remember that, Kelly Wand? No. You don't remember uh, jumping? Oh, now I do. All no, right. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's, that's basically, so yeah, if he didn't have the phone in his hand, it wouldn't be a transition. Just well, there's a there's a couple of those moments, and when I was looking, uh, when I was looking through my collection, as I sort of do when I'm having trouble with one of these, uh, I I sat upon uh, Punch Drunk Love for a couple of minutes, thinking of some of those. Those little color uh, swirl things. Exactly. Yeah. And But I couldn't think of one that was definitive for me, and that one's great. I didn't remember that. Because it's a great, it's the sort of thing where somebody might watch the movie and go, no, it's not realistic. I don't like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it's just such a stylized touch. I love it. You know, that he shows up, you know, there's one scene he's holding the phone in California, the next scene he's holding it in Utah. Uh, Those are the people who didn't like uh, the elevator scene in Drive. Went, this is, you know what? Exactly. That's, that's yeah, a that, they're good, of a piece. Yeah. It's a very good comparison, Kelly Wanda. It's exactly. called filmic language. <laughs> Don't say that too loud or they'll hear you. It's <laughs> like rap, but film. <laughs> I'm going to write that down and remember that. Uh, Kelly Wand, what is your number three choice for your favorite transition? I'll do a quote. Awesome. Well, here we are in the year 2001, huh, guys? Um... Hmm. I don't know. Time Machine. World Trade Center. JK. Uh, 2001. <laughs> but oh, not so the dumb one Tom mentioned, the fucking bone. That's so macro. That's so hit the nail on the head. Get it? Uh, what? What hmm. is the transition, then? Transition is from the last 30 minutes that you don't watch because your brain is too small to handle <laughs> the revelations at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's the one where uh, Bowman's gone through the monolith, bro, <laughs> to another dimension <laughs> on Geppettis in the book, but uh, Europa in the uh, movie. And he's aging, and uh, he's eating that dinner in the bedroom. And he drops the glass, but then it's... You know how in dreams, sometimes your identity changes? Or, uh, or Lost Highway. 
Yeah, it's like that, but it's science fiction. So it's like he sees himself, but it's because he's shedding his old identity. Or the movie Last Life in the Universe, where for no good reason, they were shooting with two sisters, uh, they sub in one of the sisters for one of the characters for about 15 minutes late in the movie. For no good reason. It's never explained. I always thought it was some kind of cool commentary, and I later read in an interview with the director that they just thought she was a fun actress, and they wanted her to come back and work on the movie some more. Wait, in what movie? There's a, a Thai movie called Last Life in the Universe, shot by Christopher Doyle, a famous cinematographer, uh, that I, you would like Kelly Wand, by the way. Uh-huh. And uh, it's about uh, a, a Japanese expatriate living in, in Thailand who uh, meets two sisters, one of whom gets killed early on, and he hooks up with the other sister. And late in the movie, for no reason, the actress playing the sister who gets killed fills in <laughs> for the same role of the surviving sister for a while. That was, and you know that, what? The, the director has said they just did it because they really liked that first actress. They wanted her to come back. I don't believe him for a second. I think there is like commentary there about the character's state of mind and him remembering back. You know what? I'm, I've done some mental gymnastics. I've come to terms with it on my own terms and not what the director said. But a similar thing happens in Last Life in the Universe. Well, great art is not always intentional, Tom. So exactly. What he's saying is true. It can still be true. Speaking of great art not being intentional, so you know that thing. The the better transition in two thousand and one, and I don't. You just wanted to. You 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 grabbed any excuse to talk about two thousand and one, and you know what? <laughs> Sucked me in, so it worked. Whatever. So you know they throw the bone up, and then it cuts to this spaceship. Yeah. Originally, and you probably know this, Kelly Wan, that spaceship was part of a plot line about nuclear satellites armed with these nuclear warheads aimed down at the world. And there was this kind of Cold War theme in the movie, but Kubrick didn't want comparisons brought up to Dr. Strangelove, which he had just shot. So all that stuff got cut. But originally, it was made clear that just like the bone thrown in the air, this satellite was a weapon. It's a weapon. That's all gone. That's not in the movie now. So it's just a gratuitous visual trick, and it doesn't have the thematic unity it was originally supposed to have. So Kubrick, n- no idea what he was doing, that guy. That guy was no, a it's just a different point. Now it's, uh, we, used, we needed a weapon to get to a more civilized state, just as at the end of the movie. He's aging and dying. And by the way, part of the, the, the awesomeness of that transition is if he, he kind of sees himself in the next phase because time has different meaning for him, man, in this other place. But he's evolving to a higher state, just as the bone evolved to the spaceship. You know what, Dingus? We should watch the last 30 minutes of 2001 just to be sure. Just, to, just maybe, it's, guys, maybe it's better for us, Dingus. You guys are as dumb as the apes. Dude. <laughs> and I'm the clubbing apes. <laughs> maybe No, Kelly One, you were the monolith. We're gonna bury, also, we're gonna bury you on the moon, and when the sun hits you, you'll make a loud noise. <laughs> if even if no one's there to hear it, <laughs> that I like that. Well, no, I don't like that transition. Arthur C. Clarke's idea was that the monolith would show uh, little TV screens. Of, uh, God, <laughs> I know. See, so it's like he would have Arthur C. Clarke would have fucked that movie up. Because I got to say, that's a brilliant conceit, this idea that aliens are like, I mean, what a great way to wait until the civilization is sufficiently developed. You bury it on the moon so that when the sun hits it, it shoots a beam to to the place you go next. It's like this great cosmic treasure hunt. Or mousetrap. No, it's a good thing, isn't it? I don't know. You know what? I need to see 2010. Did you read Childhood's End? That's the other good one. Uh, I don't read science fiction. I did like Childhood's End, yeah. The aliens look like devils, 
Oh, no, no, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I do know that one. Uh, if they make a movie of that, I'll watch it, though. So how about that? Uh, but would it be me. cool if we could, like, put these transmitters on the moon and then the rocks would turn into little crab creatures? Spoiler. See? Spoiler. There's, if that happened, we would have footage of it, Dingus. Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, what if it crashed into the satellite? Apollo, uh, what, what's better, Apollo 18 or 2001, Dingus? Get that thing that's Dingus, in my hand. Out Dingus, of my coven. <laughs> okay, Dingus, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to make a choice right now. Would you rather watch Apollo 18 or the last 20 minutes of 2001? That was dirty pool time. Can't you just say t- 2001? You have to say the last 20 minutes. That's you're only watching the last 20 minutes. Because I've been holding my tongue about Kelly's choice about Dave Bowman transitioning to his dinner table or whatever the fuck, and and I want to keep holding my tongue. All right, so I'm gonna put you down for Apollo. No one's 18. asking you to told told Huns. Uh, Dingus, why don't we instead ask you, what is your number two choice for your favorite yeah, transition? Yeah, that's probably less. Speaking of transitions. Get it? Nicely done. What's a segue? Oh, All right. Um, I just used this a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to use it again. Mm. Just uh, like uh, Michael Fassbender said. What? Save for the podcast. Remember. All right, uh, this is a movie that I could do a quote from, but uh, Kelly Wand has never seen it, so I'm not going to bother. Uh, the movie Wait, is what called... about me? What I don't remember it anyway, because I'm a buffoon. All right, here's, here's a little bit of dialogue um, for you, Tom. Okay. Should, should we stop this? Stop what? Runaway train. <laughs> oh, 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 unstoppable. <laughs> Go. I haven't seen it, whatever it is. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> I like your thought process between Runaway Train and Unstoppable. <laughs> what about my thought process, Coach? <laughs> uh, uh. All right, so uh, this is a movie called We Don't Live Here Anymore. Um, yeah, I know. Sorry, the thing is, there's no transitions in that movie. It's all. Well, you know what? When you first brought it up as like dancing scenes, I was like, "Dingus, that's a stupid choice." So when you mentioned transitions, I think it's a stupid choice. But you sold me before, so let's hear what you got. Right. Well, I, was, I was saving this moment for when for uh, a category I really wanted to talk about, as far as just little moments of editing that I really love. But I I like this as a transition, and it's super quick, um, and it's confusing the first time I watched it anyway. And every time I watch it, it kind of gives me a little bit of a jolt. So um, these two couples are uh, are having party together, as I talked about in our in our dancing three by three. And uh, the husband from one couple, his name is Jack, and the wife from the other couple, her name is Edith, uh, run off to get beer because they've run out of beer for their little party. So they go off to get beer. And they... Uh, they 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 go in, they get beer, they're at the convenience store, and then they're sitting there in the truck at the convenience store, and they realize something's going to happen here. And the they say, should we stop this? And the other one says, stop what? And they start kissing, and um, they, not, they decide they don't want to stop whatever's going on between them. And um, they say, okay, we're going to meet tomorrow at such and such a place. And then Jack, who is played by Mark Ruffalo, leans over to the steering wheel of the car. You know, he's driving, and and, uh, Naomi Watts is the passenger. And so uh, they're in that classic sort of shot through her passenger window of her and him. And then this 
boom, there's this transition. It's not, it's bare. I mean, it's just a split second in the exact same positions. Then her husband is in the driver's seat, and she's saying goodbye, guys. And it's this immediate transition to her with her husband in the car, and they're driving away from the party. And it just it's this jolting feel of this of these two couples who don't really uh, respect the boundaries as far as their roles are concerned. And I love that moment of editing. And what I'm going to use is this split second transition between from one couple to the other. It's no bone to spaceship. It's no Mrs. Thornhill. Uh, Dingus, that's a sex and existentialism movie. Definitely. Speaking of uh, shame. uh, Wait, so car driving to party. (laughs) Yep. If If you see the shot, I mean, for me, it's just indelible. And the first time I saw it, I thought, did I just see what just happened? And and the first couple of times I watched the movie, I was just what what just happened? It's such a quick, weird. It's just you know the the director doesn't give you give your you give your brain unlike most transitions which are supposed to ease you into the next moment. This one jolts you into it. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's how uh, that forever affected me. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I'm going to leave the jury out on that one, Dingus. I might have to go check that uh, scene. Tom's leaving the jury out. That illegal <laughs> phrase. I'm going to lock the jury like, out. And locked out of the uh, jury chambers. <laughs> is that pronounced Darth Jury? What? <laughs> Not everything is Star Wars, Dingus. Uh, all right, you guys ready for my number two? I'm going to give you a line. He's the 99%, yes. Uh, is this gonna be, yeah, this will be on number two. Okay, here's the line. Ready? Give him the gun. Give him all the guns. <laughs> is that giggle? Is that part of the, <laughs> the giggle is not part of it. The giggle is just I am so delighted at that line. Uh, give him because I gun. like the idea of give him the gun, give him all the guns. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, this line is delivered with, with the utmost gravity. Uh, I love this movie so much. Well, it wouldn't be Ernest goes to jail because they wouldn't want him to have the gun. So uh, this is... Um, this movie's part of a double feature, and the transition was stolen. It occurs first in the first movie, the double feature, and then freaking Quentin Tarantino in his crappy second half of the double feature steals the gag. So in Planet Terror, there's a transition where they do a joke with a missing reel, uh, and they cut to action after the missing reel and i'll talk i'll explain in a minute what exactly that is but then in death proof quentin tarantino does the same freaking thing and it doesn't work and it's just one of the many reasons i loathe freaking death proof i I cannot stand that movie but i so so love planet terror i'm so in love with that movie so we get to the point it's your classic like zombie horror movie kind of thing going on and we get to the point where there's a sex scene and it's rose i'm always going to screw this up McGowan? Yeah, yeah. McGowan. Rose Byrne is, okay, it's Rose McGowan, and it's this sex scene, and she is so incredibly hot in this movie, and it's almost like in this sex scene, she is so hot that it melts the film. <laughs> so while this sex scene is happening, <laughs> they have that film-melting effect, uh, and you're like, oh, was she going to be naked? You know, what did I just miss? But it's okay. It's like she's so hot, she melted the film, and then the little message comes up, real missing, the management apologizes, which is great, but then the movie starts... 
And now this barbecue hut that they have all – everybody has sort of come to this barbecue hut to, to hole up against the zombies is in flames. And it's overrun by swarms of zombies. From and the sex scene. And everything – you know what? Very good, Kelly Wan. Maybe that's what set it on fire. But everything that has happened in the interim, we don't get to see. And you know what? What Part of the genius of Robert Rodriguez in this movie, we didn't need to see it. It doesn't matter. It's the perfect place for that missing reel gag. Um but one of the things that happens is that uh, as soon as you know you cut from the exterior establishing shot of the burning barbecue shack, uh, all the survivors inside, there are other characters who are at other parts of the movie. They have since arrived at the barbecue shack. It didn't matter how they got there; just they're there now. And Michael Bean has been shot in the neck, in the in the throat, and he's dying. And uh, so uh, he then says to Freddie Rodriguez, thanks for telling me everything that you told me. Because they were, they were at odds with each other. It was some kind of a reveal. <laughs> and now they're buddies. And so when, when someone tries to give him a gun, Michael Bean says, give him the gun. Give him all the guns. You know, there was some reveal about him being this character, El Rey, and we don't know what that is. And it doesn't matter. There was a reveal that he goes from being the, the questionable outlaw to the action hero. And that's in the missing reel, and it's okay. We didn't need to know all that. So, that I um, found it really annoying that I didn't get to see the Rose McGowan sex scene. I was outraged, and then I'm annoyed when I don't get to see the lap dance later. <laughs> Tarantino wins that. Although you can see the lap dance scene on the extended version. What is that? In, is that in Death Proof? Yeah. Yeah, but you have to sit through Death Proof. Nobody wants to see that. No, you can fast forward to it. <laughs> uh, to the proof. But is the sex scene in the extended version of Planet Terror is my question. Or is the missing real thing still in it? I, don't think, I hope not. God. Yeah, there, no. There's an ex, first of all, there's an extended version of Planet Terror? I don't think there is, Kelly Wand. There has to be. Because there's an extended one of the other one. They wouldn't have like one 45-minute one. The well, so the, the, the Blu-ray of Planet Terror has a bonus disc, which has a bunch of like extras on it. And uh, But there, Robert Rodriguez does not monkey with perfection. The cut you saw in the theater is the... It's canon, so. But the lap dance is kind of good. You know what? Rose McGowan is so like I don't I don't need to see her naked in Planet Terror. She's just so incredibly hot anyway. It doesn't matter if I never see a nipple or an ass crack or whatever. It, it that's not. She's still so incredibly hot in that movie. Uh, it's beside she's the naked. point. There's no technical nudity. What movie is she naked in? That's uh, that Greg Erickey movie. Uh, Magnificent Skin. I don't know. What? That's a Greg Araki movie. Dingus, what's in it? What movie am I think on? What's it like? um, Thor? Doom no. Generation. Thank you. Good work, Dingus. <laughs> Snaking in Doom Generation. Uh, so tell me why. Wait, oh, Conan. I'm sorry. Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> no, that's the movie that ruined her. Oh, God, you're right. I forgot that was even her. Let's not even talk about that. Kelly Wan, I know. I know. Uh, what do you, as our death proof apologist, when did they do their missing real gag? Do you know offhand? For the lap dance. Oh, really? So it's like it's yeah. like it's like Rose McGowan. Not that's what I thought you meant by stealing it. Like he steals even like oh the hot girl's gonna do something. Nah, that's missing real. <laughs> the idea is that she's so hot she knocks a reel out of the movie. The movie now does Quentin Tarantino when he does it in Death Proof do they do the melting film effect or is it just cut to a missing nah. real title part? The other thing that's kind of lame about Death Proof is Planet Terror looks like one of those old movies yep. and like. It's all grainy and tweaked looking, but Death and Proof looks all shiny. Yeah, and so when the film melts in Planet Terror, it makes perfect sense. Right. Because it's old. It's the last print no. of it. So uh-huh. Death Proof is kind of lame on a lot of levels. But I do that, like that the moment. Thing in it, kind of. That moment in Planet Terror, Terror is what makes me love Planet Terror. 
I mean, that's what seals the deal for me. Yep. Well, there's many moments like that, Dingus. You should watch it again. She also, they are having sex a little bit, too, before the missing reel. So you get to see a little of cheesy sex close-ups. Well, and the whole thing opens with her writhing around on stage. I mean, what more do you want, Kelly Wand? Maybe uh, Shame should have the missing reel, and that's where all the, <laughs> the threesome scene went. All right. Um, so I'll that'll... save it for the podcast. Bye, guys. Uh, Kelly Wand, what is your number two choice for your favorite transition in a movie? This is my best one. Okay. This is the only one that can rival Dingus's awesome number three and none of yours because yours are terrible. But uh, my <laughs> number two, and to me, it's like the whole movie is just about this transition and everything else that happens in the movie is just uh, an echo in diminishing intensity on both sides of it. I'm referring, of course, to, oh, wait, I'll do a quote. <clears throat> oh, here we are hunting deer. I think the better quote is this is this. Because this that? is this is my number one. Yeah, how can you forget that scene with uh, with John Cazale? Uh, this is this where John Cazale has not because I just watched it for this. John really? Cazale has forgotten to bring his boots, and Robert De Niro is like, "No, I'm not loaning you my boots. You're not you're not borrowing. You're, I'm not loaning you my extra boots." He's being a dick to him, yeah. uh, and and he, he just it makes no sense. At one point, just while he's railing at John Cazale, he he takes a bullet out, and he's like, "You see this? This is this." <laughs> and John Cazale is even like, what does that mean? What does that mean? This is this. And Robert De Niro has no response to that. Uh, uh, Meryl Streep said there's something cool he does with his watch, too, that I forgot. I wanted to... Oh, there's so many cool things he did. There's a great scene where, because Meryl Streep is with Christopher Walken, like in the beginning of the movie, right. and, and Robert De Niro is obviously in love with her. And during the big wedding scene, at one point he's dancing with her, and he says, let's go get a beer. And they go over to the bar to get a beer. And she's sitting with her back to the bar, and he's facing the bar, and he gets a few beers for him. And there is just – it's just an amazing moment of tiny physicality that is just where he's going to go down and kiss her. And he thinks yeah. – and, he, and he, he doesn't. Like it's just this brief head moment, Bob kind of, but there's so much just intent in it uh, and focus. The fact that, uh, you know, that he stops mid-lean and, and thinks better and pulls away uh, – there's just so much awesome stuff going on in that movie. So I assume you're going to talk about the cut that's my choice for number one. So by the way, by the way, you've said all of mine stink. So then, therefore, your choice stinks because this well up till one. obviously <laughs> well, yeah. you just implicated yourself. Nice, you've been hoisted by your own petard. What do you think of that? Well, hoisting me further is. I actually forget. I forget. Um, well, I watched it, so I can remind you. So what do you want to good, know? Good, yeah, please do. Okay, so I know that the second half of the transition is him with a flamethrower in Vietnam. Kind of, right? You don't do, yeah, yeah. But do you remember more about, like, what happens before the flamethrower? No. Okay. So this is this is uh, my choice for number one, Kelly Wan's number two choice. We don't know if Dingus chose it or not. Kelly Wan, you still have one transition that's even better. I can't wait to hear it. No, but sorry. the first over an hour, I think, of Deer Hunter is certainly there's that wedding, and then they go hunting. Uh, and that's where Robert De Niro does the great this is this scene, mm-hmm. which means nothing, but it, there's just so much intent in, in, in his line. Um, and then they come back from hunting, having killed a deer. And by the way, there's so many little touches uh, in the early part of Deer Hunter that something is going to go wrong. There's the there's a scene where the uh, where John Savage and his, his he's the groom and the bride are doing because it's a Russian Orthodox wedding and they're doing all this like Russian Orthodox ritual stuff that to most of us just looks like 
you know, what's what's that all about? And one of the things they have to do is drink from these cups that are connected. And when they do, the priest says something like, and this represents that, uh, you know, uh, the union of your marriage. And if you spill a drop, it's bad luck. And you're supposed to carefully drink, I guess, from the connected cups at the same time. And they're drinking from them. And it seems like it goes well. But Michael Cimino puts in a little ins- insert shot of two little drips falling on her white wedding dress. Uh, and then there's the great scene where the Green Beret comes into the hall, because it's like a VFW hall or something like that, and a Green Beret comes in at one point to get a drink. And they're all like, hey, tell us what it's like over there, you know, and, and he refuses to engage them. The only thing he says to them is, fuck it. Uh, mm-hmm. And he, they, they buy him a drink. So he's like this kind of like, he's kind of like in a Greek tragedy, the, the, the sort of the blind prophet or something. Like the fact that he shows up and he's so dire. Uh, and then, so Robert De Niro has this speech about, you know, you have to kill a deer with one shot, and he screws that up when they go hunting. You know, the deer, mm-hmm. he shoots the deer, and there's this really grotesque shot of this deer, which I didn't really kill. It was tranquilized, but it's sort of like writhing around on the ground, and its eye is rolling, and he's, he's, he's botched the hunting job. Um, so they hunt the deer, they put it on the car, they come back, they come into a bar, they're all drunk and they're rowdy and they're yelling and they come into the bar, and I think it's Christopher Walken, like one of them's just playing the piano and they're winding down. And it, that right there could have been a full movie, like this arc of, of just the way it goes from the energy of the wedding to the tension of the hunting to them at this bar winding down. And then it's a jump cut. It's just a straight up cut to Robert De Niro in a pile of bodies. And he, he looks right. dead. And and you don't see, you just see him in this pile of bodies, and then you see a Vietnamese soldier throwing a grenade into a hole full of women and children, closing it, and then it blows up. Uh, a woman staggers out of the hole carrying a baby, and the Vietnamese shoulder, soldier opens fire on her and kills her and presumably shoots the baby. Uh, and then Robert De Niro staggers out of this pile of bodies and picks up a flamethrower and incinerates this soldier and then takes a gun to the soldier you know, and shoots his burning body on the ground, uh-huh. at which point... Uh, uh, oh, and by the way, all of this was preceded by... You know, actually, the, the cut was directly from them in the bar to these helicopters firing rockets into the village right that was the actual cut and then you see alcohol flammable see Uh, but and and then uh it it it, again it does a weird cut where these these reinforcements land by helicopter christopher walken and john savage say you know they they've they're being reunited there with robert de niro and then a mortar attack starts you see soldiers in the distance presumably vietnamese north vietnamese soldiers in the distance and then it's just a cut to them caught prisoners so there's just this brief little like hellish attack on a village that immediately follows that bar scene um Hmm. i guess i saw the truncated version no, no, you saw it, but it's so, I mean, it, it's almost an iconic shot because right. of Robert De Niro. Because another thing, too, we talked, we had a three-by-three three of, of uh, shaving and hair shifts. You know, Robert De Niro in the first part of Deer Hunter has a big old heavy beard. So yeah. you see him here, you know, he's a soldier now. He's clean-shaven. Uh, so that transition to seeing him clean-shaven and, and that flamethrower, you know, firing that flamethrower at the Vietnamese soldier, Vietnamese soldier, I think that's an iconic shot. I mean, that's what everybody remembers. Um so anyway, yeah, I love the abruptness and the brutality of that transition. Yeah. And also even just the languid, slow boringness of the wedding stuff, like, helps that transition more. Because by then you're in, you've been in a wedding mode. Like, you feel like you've come from the wedding. Like, oh, i got to go home. And, oh, look, rockets. 
I don't think it's languid and slow, though. I mean, it, that wedding stuff wedding? is so energetic. And, yeah, it's and, so full of energy. Yeah, and just even color. Visually, you know, the, the trappings of that Greek Orthodox ritual. Uh, Maybe because I saw it when I was a kid, and I'm like, I know there's yeah, yeah, something. No. When you're a kid, you would be bored. But but watch. I mean, this it's just classic 70s filmmaking, Kelly Wand. Uh, all of that so stuff. So what's the actual transition? Help me. Because I don't so it's remember. Bar. It's a cut from all of them passed out in a bar to two helicopters firing rockets into a village. And oh. that's like it's that, abrupt, you know, it, it's just that no title card, nothing. Right. It's just that abrupt. You've watched over an hour. It's like an hour and 10 minutes in of this movie about these working class stiffs in Pittsburgh. Uh, and they do mention that they're going to Vietnam. But then it's a cut from them basically passing out in this bar to this this attack on this village where Robert De Niro is like a survivor. Continents, time of day, mental state. Uh <laughs> Does it, does it fade or is it like nope. a jump cut? No, it, it jump is, cut. Yeah, yeah. It's not technically a jump cut. A jump cut's a little something different, but it is right. a. It is. It's an edit. It's just a straight up edit. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's a cut <laughs> without the right. jumping. The right. jump cut would be if they were in, still in the bar, like another tour. Right. A, a jump cut is where you're in the same scene, but it fast forwards time. Like right. It, yeah. Uh, and you, you know what? I, I say that I could be wrong about that. Don't don't quote me on that. Um, I don't think it's ever been called a jump cut. Jump cut to Vietnam. What I mean is there's no, like, you know, one of the things I I kept thinking about is how hammy uh, George Lucas ends up going with the prequels with these these ridiculous, looks like photoshopped, like, diamonds. and Yeah, those those are called wipes. Like, there's the left wipe. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I like those. And there's no wipe here. It just goes boom, shot to shot. Yep, shot to shot. Wait, how come you don't like Lucas's wipes? If I may defend the great George Lucas for a moment. Who's Do you guys remember, what's the last movie we saw that had a wipe in it? Because I love this wipe. Do you remember this? It's a movie we've seen recently. Uh, Immortals. Mm. No. Uh, that. <laughs> Mary Magdalene There was, for whatever reason, there was a wipe in The Descendants. <laughs> where at one point, uh, and I forget what the cut was to, but it does that whole like left to right thing where the the screen moves over, the cut moves over, but the descendants had a wipe in it. So there's some awesome transitions. Oh, never mind. Maybe save it for know. the runners up. Yeah. So Kelly Wan, your number two is the deer hunter. Thanks for trumping my number, number one. one. But apparently, for since describing it detail, <laughs> <laughs> and apparently all of mine stink. So your number two stinks as well. So. All right. Well, what do you remember? What? But you'll also have to remind me. Hopefully, you're not doing all movies from the 60s and 70s. So maybe we'll get something more current with your number one. But stand by for that. Dingus, what is your number one choice for a movie transition? Better than better than North by Northwest. Better than We Don't Live Here Anymore. Uh, This one's a bit unfair. I'm kind of cheating. Uh oh. Uh oh. I got a bad feeling about this, Kelly Wand. <laughs> All right, but I'm even though I'm cheating and breaking the category, I'm gonna still give you a line from it. I think. All right, mm-hmm. here you go. Bit of a break from smoking the Bible. From smoking the Bible? Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. Book of Eli. Been oh, uh, in the Bible that homegrown, half baked. Uh, the one saving grace, nearing grace, grace. No, Kelly Wand doesn't know, so I don't know. I know. I, some, I'm never, sure it's one of those. Here's the next line. We already smoked Lamentations, a right miserable cigarette. Uh, true grit? 
<laughs> who would roll cigarettes out of Bible? Ten Commandments. Uh, prisoners who couldn't get any other kinds of paper. Oh, what? What? Dingus. Well, you should feel uh, okay. Go ahead. So, Kelly Wan, this is a you haven't done your homework. This is a movie you failed to see, and you uh, you get a, a black star for that. Actually, oh. I you get a lump of coal. <laughs> Those are you get, a, you, get a, you get a pound of excrement that you can smear on the wall. Oh, <laughs> terrible value! I can't believe this whole pound is. You can use it to make artwork, Kelly Wan. Oh, this so is way worse than an ounce of. Dingus, <laughs> do the line again and do it with the right accent to set the tone. Yeah, bit of a break. Bit of a break from smoking the Bible. <laughs> All right, so that's Australian, obviously. Yeah, it's so, definitely. Well, it's it's like I'm doing a, I'm doing Arnold Schwarzenegger there. All right, so this is from the the movie Hunger uh, by the director Steve McQueen from 2008. And um, the reason I'm totally cheating here is I'm choosing a 25 minute portion from the middle of the, the middle of the movie as my transition, and. This is a transition from the uh what Tom? <laughs> no, I'm I'm just agreeing with you that you're cheating. That's that's what that was. So go ahead, okay. All right, you can go you can agree with me whatever. Uh, I watched uh this movie again this week and there's there's one of these and this is why I was asking about a fade uh when you were talking about Deer Hunter because there's a there's a there's a great fade uh when uh the soldiers come in and start cleaning the walls and the walls start to be increasingly white as they clean because it's the dirty protest um and so they're cleaning the walls of the cell and the cell becomes increasingly white and then the screen fades up to white and then it's michael fassbender talking to his folks in in the law in the uh, visiting center so that's I, I like that transition a little bit but as i watch this and i'm just so crazy about that middle section that 25 minutes i'm talking about where michael fassbender is talking to his priest um, and it's just, for me, the perfect transition between um, the protest that you have going on and the failed, what they're talking about, the failed hunger strike to the actual um, hunger strike that takes place for the last act of the film. And it's, I love that transition because otherwise you don't understand what's going on. And, and yes, it's it's totally cheating because it's not, what Kelly's talking about, which is really a transitional shot, uh, which my other two are, but it's my, it's one of my favorite transitions because it helps me understand this point in history. It's a narrative point. I mean, if you use Kelly Wan's term at a narrative level, you're, you're absolutely within your rights, Dingus. So, right. well, and, and Kelly's, uh, vague enough <laughs> that I feel like I can get away with it. <laughs> uh, narrative. <laughs> Something. So, Kelly One, what is your excuse for having never seen Hunger? Because it's not called The Hunger, by the way. Oh, that's see, because I thought I'd seen it already, and I saw <laughs> Thirst. That. Um, oh, very good. So you're you're the partly vampire there. movie, yeah. right? Uh, in this movie, Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve do not make out. Well, then why would I want to watch that? Watch them not make out. Fair point. Well, they're not in it. I have a question: Is anyone ever stricken by eating too much? Like that's their strike. Uh, Monty Python, Fat. Meaning of Life. How's that? He wasn't on strike. A you don't know that. You don't know his backstory. A gluttony strike. Mr. Creaso. Yeah. Wait, so I, what's I'm telling the... you, Ellie, you have to... This, this 
scene that I'm talking about is, is phenomenal. All right, I mean, all right. the, the camera just sits on these two guys talking. And it's Kelly, just being it's, you're not, not going to sell it saying that. <laughs> you're going to make uh, Kelly Wan think it's boring. That's so hard to sell that scene, too. Uh, it's going to be 25 minutes, no camera movement, two actors. Just I know the Sex Addict movie was fun, but where do you see these two guys talking in the Hunger Strike movie? <laughs> but there's there's so much great smoke. Oh, my God, the smoke is awesome in it. And also, right before this, and what I had forgotten about is that I should have used this for one of my my um, haircut changes because there's an awful bloody haircut that happens right oh, that's before right. that. Ew, that's making me uncomfortable. I'm sorry. It. It's just, oh, God, that, that scene is so freaking great because of how it takes place and how it's shot. And then at the end of the scene, the way the cutting changes during the scene, finally, he decides, I'm going to start to cut between them. And I'm gonna, you're going to see something else going on here, and you're understanding sort of the – the motivation of the character, the argument that he's making, the argument that the other character is trying to make against him. I mean, it's just oh, it's so brilliant. Kelly Wan, think of it as my dinner with Andre, but without the dinner part and without Andre. <laughs> I'm trying to digest what Dingus is telling me, but I have no appetite for the topic anymore. <laughs> my dinner without dinner and Andre. <laughs> All right, so Dingus's number one is hunger. Um, Wait, what was the the uh, I, yeah? Had Dingus, I guess Kelly Wan is taking uh, is taking notes, so Dingus help him out here. How uh, would you describe that in words rather than the words you just used? The second act. The okay. so my number one choice was the deer hunter. Kelly Wan stole ah. just like just like last week. Kelly Wan, you stole my number one choice. Wait. Remember last week, favorite uses of red, you were like, oh, I guess Hal's eye. And that was my number one choice last week. So you're stealing, you're making a habit now of stealing my top picks, and I don't appreciate it. Hmm. So there. Uh, Kelly Owen, what is your number one choice for your favorite transition in a movie? Apparently better than the transition in 2001 that, and better than the transition in Deer Hunter. Okay, I don't really remember this one, so you may have to help me. Ready? <laughs> Rock and roll. But I have a backup if you don't. Now, those are called runners up, and we'll talk about them after. All right, I'll do a quote. <clears throat> Let's go uh, up. Okay. <laughs> Tell us when in the movie that transition is. Isn't there like a scene in Up where uh, his old woman, they're climbing up the hill, and then she gets tired, and then the next scene it's uh, her coffin getting buried? And then, uh, Jesus, the next scene. So basically, so. you liked the montage that opened up, that you're saying? It didn't open it, because he goes to her house, and then there's the ambulance. That's before that. Ah, good point. You're right. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Up's uh, my number one. That great transition. So, come on, Tom. Help me out. Don't make me look dumb on the internet. That's not what you're for. <laughs> uh, I don't remember it being anything quite as, as uh, foreboding as a all right, fuck that. You know what? I was just kidding. My actual number one is... No, uh, number one runner-up is what? <laughs> my number one for real... Now that we've filled in our choices, what is your runner-up, Kelly Wan, that would have been in there if you had gonna, chosen up as your favorite? It's going to go on the website that you don't frequent anymore, except in t- trademarked form, uh, is from the Motion Picture London that I know you watched this week. Did you finish it yet? Uh, no, I have never seen London. Uh, all right, so there's a transition in London. You want to tell us what that is? I didn't or... finish it. 
I'm very upset at you right now. <laughs> uh, I've, I've London... been watching a lot of TV lately, Kelly Wand, as you know. All right, you remember the part of London? I've never seen Neal? it. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Why can't you just be normal? Is it when they go to Brighton? <sighs> you know what? I'm just going to write it up on the internet, and you'll have to see what I mean. Well, your number one choice is up. So if you want to include runners-up, be sure to mention London. Runners- uh, one of my runners-up is um, I kind of you know what these are like. Does it count if there's a title card? Like the title card in, in 28 days later, that's a pretty cool transition. Like was that? Yeah, you know what that was my one of my runners-up. It is. Yeah, you know, I you know I I like those, but I avoided them too for my you know because like uh, Pulp Fiction has like those little Marcellus Wallace. So you know it it, it gives you little chapter marks. Right. Uh. Those don't count. I wouldn't have accepted those, and I'm a pretty stringent grader. Uh, there are certain, like, I would call these assumption transitions, where the audience thinks one thing, and then a scene happens to, <laughs> to say, yeah, you were wrong. And I think of the, the, the scene, Dingus, in 28 Weeks Later, where the door opens and you discover it's daylight. But I also think of uh, Hannah emerging from the military base into the desert. Yeah. Like these scenes where you think you're thinking one thing, and you're like, "Oh, we're here. This is where we are." Uh, like I, li- I like assumption transitions like that. Uh, what runners up did you guys have? Uh, I have the Raiders of the Lost Ark map dots. Mm-hmm. I mean, and um, provocative. Taking shelter. There's one dream where he wakes up, where it where it's like he's drowning, and I. It's not really a transition, but it's kind of... I just had this mental image of... I was trying to think of things that Kelly might be imagining as he came up with the topic. Like mm. uh, like <laughs> seeing, a, seeing a planet and then the, the camera panning down and it's a different planet or going over water from one <laughs> shot and then you're you're actually in another time period but still in That's water. what Dingus thinks, I imagine. Well, you're I, on a planet and then you go down and it's uh, Venus. So anyway, coming... Coming out of a dream was was one of the transitions. I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kelly, what are the runners up for you besides London? One of your uh, <laughs> one of your abruptness <laughs> ones was like the dream sequences in uh, American Werewolf. Like, yep. Oh, or also in in Wicker Man. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there were plenty of those in Wicker Man where Nicolas Cage wakes up and something terrible, and oh, it's a dream. And then he wakes uh, up and something uh, terrible, uh, and oh, it's a dream. <laughs> No, don't see that movie. <laughs> Too late. It's not the real Wicker Man. The real one's the other one. It is the most recent one, though. The one with Christopher Lee. Come on, that's Neil LeBute. How can you not like a Neil LeBute Wicker it's Man? It's PG-13, and they don't show his legs getting broken. Fuck that he, movie. Anyway. He pun- uh, punches women. What do you think of that? Who? You don't you do not do that very often in movies. By the way, also in Deer Hunter, there's a great scene where John Cazale is, is jealous of, he's dancing with his, uh, another dude is dancing with his girlfriend and is, is touching her butt, and he comes up and uh, George Zunza, who I'd forgotten was in Deer yeah. Hunter, eggs him on. So John Cazale goes over and separates the two of them and then punches his wife. What? <laughs> he like, hits her and knocks her out on the ground. 
And she's like sprawled out on the ground and everyone pulls him back. Uh, and I was like, I guess this is 78. I don't know how old Deer Hunter is, but you couldn't. You, you used see. to be able to do that. You used to be like you could. And he's not a villain in this movie. Yeah. And she gets up, you know, steel in a little works. bit. And he's like all apologetic. And he can, yeah, it's steel workers. Exactly. It's this blue collar thing. Um, but uh, Does they, the guy say smell her. What? Sorry, never mind. Oh, Dingus was doing a shame reference. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but my favorite woman punch was in Ishtar when Warren Beatty punches uh, Isabella Johnny because he, he thinks that she's a dude. And then she raises her shirt, shows him her boob, and he's all, uh. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? Ishtar. That's it, Ishtar? Oh, my yeah. God. He's all, didn't mean to hit you, but, uh, and then she flashes the boob and he's all. Kelly One, is that scene also in Albert Knobs with Glenn Close? <laughs> Albert Knobs? <laughs> Albert Knobs with Glenn Close. I don't know at what point the title stops there, but anyway. Uh, so, uh, Mary Magazine uh, with a swimming hole, like she's jumping into the swimming hole. Oh, that's a good one, Kelly Wan. Yeah, that's a very There's good a lot one. of those. There's a lot of good transitions in there. Say the full name of the movie. Mary Margeline Madrazine Mattress Queen. <laughs> You're awful yeah, at, at Martha Marcy May Marlene. You're awful at it, Kelly Wand. Uh, also, uh, Final Destination 3, when the tanning beds become coffins. Those Who's in those? Who's in uh, those? Oh, I know those women. Yeah, who's girl? one? Of, who's one of the girls in one of the tanning beds in Final Destination Three? Uh, Kelly Wand. Oh no, Lydia Hussey. Shalane Simmons from Chupacabra Terror. Whoa, I haven't seen that. <laughs> you should. Should I? You should see every movie with Shalane Simmons. What's the who, who, who most recently, By the way, who most recently appeared in Tucker and Dale versus Evil? Oh yeah, you said that was not. As exciting as I... But it has Shalane Simmons, so it's got that going for it. Is she al fresco? Uh, yes, but from a distance. But not that I need <laughs> that. She's a beautiful woman. I don't need her to be naked. She's never been sexier than she is in Chupacabra Terror. And she's Tom, not naked. There's Tom, sense. what is that? What is that? Dingus, I cannot do... I know you're trying to get me to say a Shalane Simmons line from Chupacabra Terror, but I cannot do justice to... Her, it's like Robert De Niro going in to kiss Meryl Streep. It's something like only he can do that little movement. Only Shalane Simmons can proclaim that it's the chupacabra the way that she does it. I can't. I just can't go there. Only Jude Law can take what's in his hand out of uh, Robert Downey Jr. All right, Kelly, here, since you failed the Shalane Simmons test, here's another test for you. Get that out of my face. Take what's in your hand out of my uh You know what, Kelly, pocket. I just hope that by the time we see Sherlock Holmes' Game of Thrones... We're not seeing that. You have got these lines down. Yes, we no. are. That's, that's going to be our Christmas podcast. Yep. I don't like CG movies about Victorian-era detectives using Matrix powers. Kelly, what if I told you that Jessica Biel was in Sherlock Holmes' Game of Thrones? <laughs> She you know, last week when we were talking about the Descendants, every time we I said Shailene Woodley, I was thinking Shailene Simmons. Oh, Shailene Woodley. She's uh, exactly old enough to go for. <laughs> uh, Dingus, what's our three by three going to be next week? And will Kelly Wand have the opportunity to go? I'm going to say yes. <laughs> All right, what do you got for us? Shame. Oh. Was- I saw a movie with a horrible example of one of these this uh, last week, and I was really disappointed because this is a director I had high hopes for. 
So um, the this is going to be your three favorite pool scenes. <laughs> uh, this is great. No, I loved it. Kelly Wan, why are you going, uh? Haven't we, you mean pool table? <laughs> no, I'm like talking about swimming slur? pools. So, oh. I, so I watched uh, one of my screeners this week. I got to watch uh, Rampart, which was uh, directed by Oren Moverman. Who, what do we know him from, Dingus? Uh, we know him from The Messenger. Oh, Woody, Woody Al- or Harrelson was, was in that as well, and he was great. So Woody Harrelson must be awesome in Rampart, yeah? He, he must be. He must have changed the genre. <laughs> that is a great pool scene. <laughs> and so he's just flailing about in the pool and having a tantrum in the pool. But it's like it's late in the movie where he's like in the depths of his depravity. So it's just supposed to be I think it's supposed to be like, you know, it's like almost like the junkies are tedious scene where the junkie is shot up and is dying and his eyes are closing. And it's supposed to be like that level of darkness. And it's just him being sullen in the swimming pool. <laughs> right. And he's just flailing about. And, and it's raining, too, in the pool. That means something, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a horrible pool scene. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this, these are your three favorite swimming pool scenes. Kelly Wan, do you have are, any questions? Yeah. Yeah, it's M. Night Shyamalan off the table. Uh, you know, I've never seen The Happening, so no. Mmm. Mmm. All right. Yeah, you have. <laughs> As Kelly Wan just pointed out before, any movie could be called The Happening. <laughs> yeah. Did you read the book? It's really uh, happening. <laughs> so uh, Dingus' 3x3 next week uh, will be our favorite pool scenes. We will be seeing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Ugh. Uh, that's four movies. <laughs> <laughs> A little math humor for you. <laughs> Uh, free of charge, free of charge. So uh, join us for that uh, next week. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by uh, Christian Molowski, I think. You're getting there, man. It's Christian Morosky. And Kelly Wand. I think the original nursery rhyme is Tinker Tailor Soldier Fuckhead. Maybe I need some rehab, or maybe just need some sleep. I got it. La 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 la. Seeing it in my dreams. I'm oh. looking down every alley. I'm oh. making this desperate calls. I'm staying up all night hoping hit my head against the wall. What you got, boy, is hard to find. I think about it all right. the time. I'm all strung out. Also, the the part where uh, he turned into Magneto was a good transition. Can you just give me a hug? <laughs>